Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideology is impacting our everyday lives. Back by overwhelming popular demand this week is Di Landy from Manawahini Kōrero, who truth, clarity and straight talk will be a balm for our souls. And this morning we'll talk about their current agenda discussion document and the current political race towards October's election. I then continue the gender theme with Walt Heyer, American author, activist, and one of the original detransitioners who has been working tirelessly to protect children from the irreversible damage of transition. Marty will join me for Media Matters, and we'll talk about the week in politics, and then we'll finish things off with the Woke News of the Week. Time to dive now into the mailbag for your feedback from the text machine. Challenge your sex abuse stats. You cancelled his query. Ask him why he doesn't trust those figures. They are extreme. Dig into that. And that's, I think, in regard to the conversation that I had with Josh Locum. Yeah, I do remember that part of the conversation. But the reason I didn't dig into it is essentially he's coming from an American perspective. I'm here at a Kiwi one. It just it wasn't going to add to the context of the overall conversation. So that's really the main reason why I didn't do that. Greetings, sane ones. I'm currently listening to Sue Gray here on RCR. As far as trust goes in government and politics, I have very little. However, it seems the best way out of this clan show is to trust the best amongst us. Sue Gray, Liz Gunn and their trusted people. My concern is that they will not get enough publicity and votes from the masses to get into power. Cooperation is key. That's how the elites are able to run their plans. If our honest leaders can cooperate, we can steer our New Zealand ship back to a true course. If they stay separate and fractured, we will likely end up with a National Act government, and we can already see that there'll be no real change from the downward spiral we're on. Can RCR get Liz and Sue on air together to have a chat? And truth and cooperation, and that's from the Hermetist. 
We would love that. We would love that. I definitely know Sue would be up for it. She's uh, She was wonderful. I really enjoyed chatting to her. I have actually approached Liz on a few occasions and I am working really hard to try and get Liz on the show, but we'll see what we can do. From Edward, hi Marie, enjoying your interview with Sue Gray. It's a pity you didn't ask her about joining with NZ Loyal. In the last of the Voters United polls, NZ Loyal was just below New Zealand first and a long way ahead of Freedom New Zealand. We really need all the parties to join now before it's too late. Why not have an open discussion with all the representatives of the Freedom Parties and see if they can and publicly discuss openly why or why not they will join together and what the stumbling boxes are a theme there is a theme as I mentioned before Sue's very open to it and as you may have heard on the interview I did ask Sue about pulling people together Uh, that's why her and Brian are working together along with Hannah it is not too late as Sue has said they're certainly very open under Freedom New Zealand I will be honest I do believe that there are a lot of egos out there those that believe that by carving a path on their own they were able to achieve more I don't actually agree with that. I actually think if all of those parties were to coalesce together, they'll have a much, much greater opportunity at being able to get across that line. It's up to them. As Sue said on interview, her door is always open. Give give her a call. You've got until about the 16th of September, which is RIP Day, in order to make that happen. So clock is a ticking. Hi, Marie. I've just been listening to Sue Gray and what she said about Winston Peters saying that unvaccinated people should be punished. Oh, does she have uh, the footage or evidence that he said that? Because as I understand it, he was never for the mandates or the COVID vaccine. So I find it difficult to believe he would say that. I know other MPs do say similar things, Luxon Seymour and those who are in Parliament, but I've never heard that from Winston. Can you please clarify? That's from Mariska. I do know that there is a series of six social media comments and posts that were made on Winston's account, which he has said that was a staffer, which all refer around to the vaccines and the mandates. Cam has spoken to Winston and spoken to him around these. So I would suggest that you have a listen there. But yes, there are there is stuff actually out in the record. However, Winston has openly acknowledged that as times have changed, his view has changed. He is now looking at moving on a different path. So kudos for that. This is from Edward. Love the interview. It had had a real national radio vibe, but without the propaganda. Great interviewing. Thank you, Edward. I greatly appreciate that. This one is from Rachel. I was pleasantly surprised this morning to find out that Josh Slocum of Disaffected was being interviewed on your show. I've been a longtime listener of the Disaffected podcast, and Josh has a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to personality disorders and the woke nonsense of today. Like Josh, I felt chills when Jacinda said, let your government be the single source of truth. How Orwellian is that? I think of my late mum, who was smart, politically savvy, and did her own research. One of her favourite jokes was, how can you tell if a politician is lying? Their lips are moving. No way could anyone blindly trust a politician. I also think Josh's advice on how to react to work cluster B types is ingenious and memorable. Say no. And remember the JADE acronym. Don't justify, argue, defend or explain. Thanks to yours and Josh's advice, I'll be ignoring the Wokies in my life. Fortunately, I have very few of them. Keep warm. Cheers, Rachel. So thanks for that, Rachel. I really do appreciate it. So thank you for all of your feedback. We really do appreciate it. If you want to send us some feedback, 2057 is the text number or inbox at realitycheck.radio. 
Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. It's now time to head back down to Aotearoa Farm and see how the animals are getting on. Squealer Robertson heaves a deep sigh. He's standing in the middle of the large silo, hidden away from the prying eyes of the farmyard. It's the National Aotearoa Farm Central Silo, the repository for all the combined feed and the heart of the farm's wealth. It keeps the farm fed, enables trade amongst other farms, and despite Aotearoa Farm's relatively small size, this silo has allowed the animals of this modest hamlet to achieve well beyond their means. And it was that prophetic thought that was staring Squealer in the face right now. As if the gravity of the pending election was weighing heavily on our squealer, he took a glance around the empty silo, defeated that his last gasp effort to refill it before the wider farmyard was to notice their grim situation had now passed. His plan to requisition extra feed from those occupying the richest and lushest pastures was scuppered by chippy pork. Squealer was furious for weeks. Plan B to reduce feed allocations to the works planned in and around the farmhouse to try and stem the tide started rumours of holes and gave Squealer an ulcer. Even the sheep were chiming in, which irked Squealer no end. Haven't I kept them excessively well fed over the past three years? In fact, haven't I kept all of Aotearoa farm well fed and fat over the years of the great sickness he snorts out? only to hear his hollow sounds of his echo bounce back to him. He trotted out of the silo, resigned to the knowledge that this will soon no longer be his problem. He would plaster a smile for the sheep and start telling stories about his trip to Damascus, knowing full well most animals will have no idea where that was. As Squealer waddled back into the farmyard, he gets accosted by Shawshank, the farm-trotting co-leader of the free-range pigs. He had a bone to pick with our squealer. What's this nonsense I hear about you allocating more feed to those keeping the tracks and paths on the farm, screeches Shawshank. You promised extra feed to sacrifice to the weather gods. Don't you get it, squealer? I've made promises that I can't keep. Squealer just shrugged and waddled away. He was in no mood for Shawshank's petulance today. Then it dawned on him. He knew what he could do to elevate his mood. Repaint the rules on the back of the barn. That always made a pudgy porcine grin with gaiety. It would also get Shawshank off his tail for five minutes. So he quietly got out his paintbrush and added the new rules on centralising control of the wells and watering holes on the farm. With a final flourish, he went back to the farmhouse to wait for the bleating chance of the sheep informing the farm of the new rules. As he sat there with his beer and pie, his favourite post-barn painting snack, the bleating started in unison. But instead of word of his new rules passing the ship's lips, all he heard was is, Winnie Ben says cows are cows, bulls are bulls, rams are rams, ewes are ewes, hens are hens, and cocks are cocks. What? raged Squealer spitting pastry and ale to all corners of the farmhouse, 
that treacherous, cunning old donkey. How dare he dismantle the most sacred of well-crafted lies that he, Napoleon, and the other international members of the porcine oppressors collective, Fox for short, had been propagating for the best part of a decade. He stormed back into the farmhouse in need of a cup of tea and a lie down. He needed time to formulate a plan for his escape and how much of the downfall of Aotearoa Farm's fortunes can be laid at Chippy's trotters. Revenge is a dish best served cold, like pork terrine. Make sure you tune in next week to the adventures on Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture, here with Marie on Reality Check Radio, returning by absolute popular demand. The wonderful Di Landy. Kia ora, Di. Kia ora, Marie. Thanks for having me back. Oh, Honestly, Di, if I get one more piece of feedback that says to me, when are you going to get Di Landy back on the show? <laughs> Here we are. Di, of course, is from Manawahini Korero, and we had a massive korero last time. We're going to, I know, have another big one again this time. What have you been up to the last few months, my friend? Well, Manawahine Kororo, first off, we did a consultation document for New Zealand first, and of course it was on gender identity. Well, I think it's quite obvious they've picked it up. I'm actually, they actually asked me if I would stand in my rohi for them so as a candidate, but unfortunately I, I don't have the capacity to do that. So, you know, as pleased as I was to be asked and honoured, I had to refuse. Mm. You know, but it was pretty cool to be asked anyway. So I've got this document in front of me. There's a lot of point. There's a lot of bullet points here. And until you've been in the trenches, I don't believe the average Joe lunchbox really understands how much this has infiltrated our communities and our societies. I mean, for example, mixed wards in hospital. Like I'm a frequent flyer to hospital because I have COPD and among other things. So, you know, most winters I'm in there and they're putting me in there with men. My nephew had a car accident. He's He was in t- early 20s and he's in with all these old qui who have had blinking hip replacements and stuff. It's hardly dignified. Yeah. No. You know, and women have the absolute right, morally and legally, for safety, dignity, and privacy. Well, we have that right. Well, this is just it, even most wards as well. I mean, most of them now are, what, four to six bed in the shared rooms. I mean, you get no privacy even when you're in there with other women, let alone throw right. a man into the mix. And, I mean, hospitals aren't dignified places. I mean, you're in those awful gowns, your bits are hanging out. I mean, you've only got a thin curtain to separate you during an examination. You can't burp, you can't fart, you can't do anything without your neighbour knowing what's going on. I mean, a little shred of decency surely couldn't go. I mean, surely. wouldn't hurt, would it? Well, and, you know, this this government is very good at hiding things. We've already had a woman attacked in hospital. She is an amputee. And how many more have attacked? We've got men committing violent sexual crime being recorded as a woman's crime. Women don't rape. You need a penis to rape, and we don't have one by definition. And this is all these laws that are sneaking in. And then there's another one coming. And, um, you know, most of our human rights and dignity are actually covered you know, under human rights and the Bill of Rights. And everyone has the right to safety, dignity and privacy, but it seems that, well, us females don't. Mm. And, and as, as long as we can, Manawahine Kōrero will fight this. 
and and we'll fight it. And you know, like the haka isn't whispered. Yes, yes. Well, where's the Ministry of Women on all of this? Oh, I mean, they've sold out. They've sold out. Um, I've just seen on Twitter today. Speak up for women. They've been blocked for asking what's a woman. You know, which is totally ridiculous. So they've so they've been blocked by the Ministry of Women on Twitter yes. for asking what a woman is. Yes, um, from the head of a uh, is it Marie Lerbeck or something? I don't know, <coughs> but I do know they sold out long ago. Same as the Maori Women's Welfare League, they sold out long ago. They're hemorrhaging members. I don't know if they've done done their tax return since two thousand and nineteen. Mm. Right. Actually, that is really sad, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've got very fond memories of the Māori Women's Welfare yes. League and they did such wonderful work for the community. And then you've got the um, young chap, did you see him, that's just been prosecuted or is in court at the moment for, um, was it $1.4 million uh, assigning invoices for Māori wardens uh, during COVID where there were no, I think that was around your way, wasn't it? Yes, I'm bound to have been, and you know, speaking of the Maldi wardens, the latest call to use them instead of the police in Auckland is just abhorrent. I don't know if people have seen the average age of these wardens. Yeah, no, they're not spring chickens. You know, a lot of them are Komatua and Kui. And personally, I don't want my Komatua and Kui patrolling the streets in the Auckland where they keep shooting no. each other. I, I think that's totally unacceptable. No. To, to even request that. But, you know, I thought, oh, yes, they've hauled this one out with the guy with his false invoices. He'll be the full guy because there has to be an inquiry about this COVID scam and the lockdown and everything. I think New Zealand really suffered from it and people's mental health is really suffering. So tell me about this document. So you've pulled this document together. There's all these different points on there, and I am going to pl- pl- pull out some points because there's some real there's some real crackers in here. Uh, remove the provision in the Education and Training Amendment that requires state boards to include rainbow positions on the school boards. So is that like boards of trustees? Yes, so- yes. They, um, my sister Philippa actually submitted on that bill and the Sports and Integrity Bill. They were held on the same day, and it's putting a rainbow person on each school board. Now, that's kind of ridiculous to me because if we're going to do it about fairness and numbers and stats and census and down all those paths, then that's stacking the board. Well, it is stacking the board because, I mean, you'd be looking at about what, 10% if you've only got how, – how big is a board? Well, it depends on the school size, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and, if you've only got six on a board that. and you have yeah. the principal plus you have generally a um, teacher representative, so that wipes two of them out, and then you yeah. throw on the – yeah, it does take the board. I mean, if they yeah. happen to be a member of the rainbow community and they get elected like anybody else, fair cop. But they're yeah, saying that they have to, as an assigned member of the board, oh, joy, uh, stop teaching that children uh, can be born in the wrong body. Puberty is an illness and op- optional. That hormone medications play a role in healthy development. Stop transitioning. It isn't harmless fun. It's damaging to children's intellectual and social development on the ground. It is gender, closets and secrets from parents what does that mean yeah at school your child can go to school say your boy timmy goes to school yeah there is dress up rooms and closets that supply the opposite sex clothing and accessories so timmy can go to school as timmy be tina all day and then come home and be back to Timmy and the parents not told right i'm here i was thinking metaphorical closet but no you're actually talking like yes 
social transitioning change rooms? Yes. Oh, for goodness sakes. Yes, stop all this. Um, you know, the rest of the world is turning, albeit slowly. So, and that's why it's getting really mad. But there's just been a document printed and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine countries have signed it. And 21 specialist doctors have signed it to say, put a halt on this gender-affirming care. Um, it's well documented that it's experimental. There is no long-term studies about the efficacy, how good it is. The studies that have been out have been debunked. It's been proven time and again that suicide is a higher risk post-surgery than before surgery. Um, and like the UK, Sweden, Finland have all said no. 19 states in America have said no. Mm. No more to this doing it to youth because these are irreversible. Yes. Um, so has you, New Zealand first taken these points up as part of policy? I believe so. Um, I've listened to a few videos from Shane Jones, Winston Peters, when he's done a few videos about the um, REC in schools and the indoctrination. And, and they've come out quite strong against it as well. I mean, you know, politicians come out strong at this time. Um, but, you know, when he will get my two ticks? He's certainly making a play for things. That's for sure. One of the things I found, I've just been going, like going through this. And yes. the uh, last time we spoke, the self-ID bill hadn't yet passed. Yes. And that is now tracked through. I mean, do you know whether or not there has been uh, much chopping and changing or utilisation of the bill since it's passed? I don't know any numbers, but I was reading um, this, you know, is on social media that it's only $10. But, you know, now, now we're getting, like, the thing with birth certificates, for me, I've always thought and believed a birth certificate was to record a live birth. That's their purpose and for census and population. Unless, of course, you're my mum in her era where she wasn't counted because she is mouldy and they're non-people. She never had a birth certificate, which I presume to be the same for heaps of my elders. You know, to me, it's a point. It records a point in history that this person was born alive. And because mm. there's all that straw man argument and about the putty that comes with it as well. But the birth certificate was always to record a live birth. But now we can come in and chop and change them and, and say, tell lies on them. They're nothing but vanity papers. And I have a real problem that the market to state of change has been removed. So, for example, Shane Winter, he can change his birth certificate and the marker that says there's been a change has been removed. He's got a whole new persona. If you want this information, it's locked up like Fort Knox. So you can't just request it. I think you have to be an official to request it. So the way my mind works, that if Shane Jones is now Sally Jones, then is all his crimes gone? Oh, you mean Winter, Shane Winter? Sorry, yes, Shane Winter, are all his crimes gone? Well, they don't exist on his new name. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just look at this and think grifters and shysters and fraudsters could have an absolute field day with this. And, and it's all it's all part of the surrogacy and, you know, Manawahini Kōrero all stand very firm that selling humans already has a name and it's called trafficking. It isn't surrogacy. 
It is trafficking. You know, there are wards of unwanted surrogate babies around Europe because people have rejected them. You know, babies are not accessories, mm. which they seem to be. I yeah, And we stand firmly against surrogacy. Now, we're not talking whangai here, which is completely different. Mm. And and so once again, you know, the treaty gets brought in and, oh, we're doing it because of the treaty. What a load of codwallop. There's well, nothing there in the to, treaty. Yeah. Well, I mean, you actually, I see this, I note this you've got down here, stop using titiriti to justify rainbow and critical race inclusion policies. I mean, it's that weaponization of the treaty, isn't it? It is, and, and it's very revisionist, like, you know, Kitty Kitty, who's put this latest bill in, and there's things I don't even understand in it. You might be able to help me. What is intersectional discrimination experienced by trans, non-binary and intersex? What does that even mean? <laughs> that basically well, means anyone that doesn't agree with them. You know, just... But there's nothing in the treaty about this. On Kitty Kitty's thesis, page 82, she even states herself there is no evidence. And mm. I'm sitting here in 2023 and I still haven't heard a song about them. I still haven't heard the legend of the great trans warrior. There is no evidence. And what this bill is doing is laying a history that didn't exist. For the listeners, outline what that bill is in case they've missed it. Oh, look, it's got a huge, huge bloody name, but it's an amendment to the Human Rights Act to insert the LGBTQIWTAF bill. And it got drawn out of the biscuit tin, but I thought she was seeing you next Tuesday. I thought she was gone. Same. Same. She's leaving in October. She's an independent. So, um, you know, changed my mind, but... You know, I don't believe for a minute it got drawn out that it was the only, you know, the only way it got drawn out, it was the only one in there. As, mm. as you know, I, I just lack little faith, little faith. Um, Is this likely um, to get through and get passed before they stop sitting in three weeks or a couple of weeks, um, whenever it is? Don't know. I don't believe so because it hasn't even got to select committee yet. They might try and rush it through under urgency, which is how they do things. But how can you insert the LGBTQIWTAF? Why this? Why not the deaf? Why not the disabled? How can you make this group of people a, a, a sacred caste of people and then use the treaty to do it? and say that this is how it was. And, you know, by the time my mook was 10, what Kitty Kitty's saying will be taken as sooth. So is she trying to imply that this is a wider form of tikanga and all of these things need to be included under yes. what is... No. This bill would rectify that by adding two new grounds to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination. She's also inserted intersex which is a very big Trojan horse. It has been publicly said time and time again by the intersex community, we have nothing to do with the T. Mm. There are less than 60 intersex conditions in the whole wide world. It doesn't matter because each intersex individual is either male or female. Yeah. So Castor Samaya is male. He's fathered children. He's a he's, uh, um, man running in the women's races. He's a man, he's father children. And and when I'm talking male and female, I'm talking sperm and over. Mm. Although Eli Rubber Chicken purports to do both because he's intersex and trans and non-binary, there isn't an individual that has both. Is this the soup thrower? 
Yes. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I just call him Eli Rubber Chicken. <laughs> Eli Rubber Chicken. I love it. So, um, well, sorry, actually, sorry. no, that's all right, because um, Eli's due in court soon. Yes, on the 20th of September. And Thursday is when the granny basher appears for a case review hearing. Mm. Oh, because there, there was a, what was it, a clerical error? Yes, yes, a clerical error, which I've translated. This is how little faith I've got. I've translated clerical error to mean, eek, there's too much public pressure. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I've translated it. Yes, so Kelly J's looking at coming back. I saw that she has bought tickets. Yes. Yeah. So are you guys going to, you're going to make a little um, hikoi up to Auckland and Yes, it's at the Auckland District Court on the 20th of September. And to the best of my knowledge, it's Lesbian Resistance, Terry Lipinovic and Tania Sturt organising it. Yeah. I know the police have already sort of recommended she not come, which, of course, is red rag to a bull to her. The first thing she did when she got that was buy the tickets. Absolutely. I mean, her visas for two years. And and why shouldn't KJK come? Mm. Mm. There's no, you know, she's coming like as KJK. She may very well be coming to give evidence as well, a victim. But I'm sorry, she, look, victims' rights is something. It doesn't matter mm. what you think of her politics or her stance or her ideology or anything like that. She has been a victim of a crime. Yes. She's well within her right yes. to face the accused in court. It's as simple as that. And if they don't want her here because they don't agree with her, well, I just feel like saying, I saw Ellie Moore wrote a piece um, and she was absolutely teeth gnashing and hand wringing over it. And it's really a case of if you do not agree with her, do not engage with the content. It's quite Move simple. along. You know, yes. I, that's what I don't understand. Ignore it like you do poverty and violence and rape and child trafficking. Walk past it like you do all those things. That's what I reckon. Mm. You know, um, she has every right to come. She was assaulted in this land, and New Zealand should be hanging its head in shame. I'm hoping that rubber chickens facing two charges because Tania Sturt got souped as well. She's oh. the um, white-haired woman with Posey at the time, yes. so yes. I'm, I'm hoping he's got two charges on him. But I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, well, we'll have to certainly watch the space when that case comes up. That's for certain. Politics. It's been an interesting old time in politics. It sure has, and I just, mm. New Zealand first have really made it exciting. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite boring, just the old, same old rehash of everything, you know, a national today going, oh, we're going to burn cell phones. Really? Really, mate? Is that all you could come up with? I have to, I, I, heard, look, I have to admit, I heard that. And, you know, whilst I don't think it's particularly helpful for kids, to be on their phones whilst they're at school, surely that's up to the individual school to decide, not the government. Yes, and I'm quite sure that teachers aren't in their classroom letting kids spend all lesson on their phones. I certainly know at the, the school that my sons are at, the boys can have phones at school, but they need to stay in their bags while they're at school. So they are literally yeah. there. So if they've got to make arrangements with parents and pick up some of that kind of yes. thing, you know, my boys will often come home and say, oh, so-and-so got his phone taken off him today because he was doing, using it when he shouldn't be using it. I love walking around there when I've gone to go and do stuff. And the boys are doing things like playing handball and touch, a shocker, stuff like that. Shocker, and not really shocker. Phones. Yeah, hey, so, but shocker. they didn't. Yeah, but they didn't need a government edict to tell them to do that. It's for me that is just an authoritarian, heavy-handed 
policy that's been designed for those who have been clutching and hand-wringing, thinking, yes, this yes. will fix education. Well, yes. take all the yes. gender woo-woo out of education. Yeah, that get could be the start. out and put the science and biology and all that back in. And how about a bit of maths and English? You know, New Zealand has an appalling illiteracy rate. Mm. I'm stunned because, you know, I'm from the generation where education was your key to get out of here and to work through the stratas. I come from, and my parents worked all the hours God sent them to privately educate us. And there's seven of us. So, you know, that's my backdrop. And so I've had to have a big, fat tuggy for education. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really sorrowful. I want all these academics, get out. Just get out. Just keep it to yourselves. We shouldn't have all this academic bloody frou-frou as policy like Kitty Kitty's bill was wanting to legislate mannerisms, mannerisms for the LGBTAFs, you know? What mannerisms? How can you legislate mannerisms? What, so is she trying to legislate a limp wrist or something? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, what, a mince and a limp wrist? This is, this is the words. Gender identity or expression, which means the self-identified gender, name, pronoun, appearance, mannerisms, or other gender-related characteristics of a person with or without regard to the person's assigned sex at birth. We must be really dumb if we have to legislate that gender and sex are different. Why do we need to make a law? All I see is this is a Trojan horse to backfoot the hate speech laws on. Because if mm. this goes through, misgendering will be a crime. Dead naming will be a crime. So, you know, if you're calling Eli rubber chicken, he will become a crime because his preferred pronouns, her and she. Oh, gosh, um, I'd be in trouble. I spend all my time calling Chanel he. Yes. yes see, this, this will become a crime. <laughs> and, and then... So dead naming, so calling Shane Winter Shane, that'll be a crime. Will Nanny on the Marae get hauled away and arrested because she won't let the men go in while the muku are in there? Because it'll be a crime. You know, I don't think people have thought this through enough. It's a very slippery slope. Mm. I just, and, and to put intersex in there, and like what she said about intersex was quite hilarious, really. Like, you know, it's a shame it's not a comedy. Colonisation resulted in suppression, criminalisation and pathologizing of those people and resulted in takatapui often not being accepted today. So it's gone from being widely accepted, where it didn't exist, to being like how it is today. The manner of explicit human rights protections will help redress the historical trauma this has caused. I love this historical trauma. What is this historical trauma? Who's suffering from it? And who's paying for the therapy for all those people who have been traumatised by what? And, yes, <laughs> and that, the intersex, we looked at them as sent to us as a gift. Like, how can you put all 2023's language and ideas and ideals into the 1800s and go, nope, nope, that's how it was. Yep, yep, no, they were terrible. They were terrible. You know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> You know, Don't hold back now, darling. <laughs> because I think of the, um, on, you know, the TRAs today mm. and how awful they are, and then I think about our um, fantastic warriors we had back in the day, and there's no way Tarotaha would take one of them on a war raiding party flapping around with the mannerisms. No way. 
And the only reason if he did, there are two reasons that they would have been taken. And the first reason would be for the bloodlust and the men to do their sex thing with. Right? Because of mm-hmm. all that height and oh man, boom. Right? And the second reason would be for Kai Tangata. I don't think there'd be any other reason to take these high needs individuals on a warring party. I can't see it myself. No. Hey. Well, as you and, said, where are the songs? Where are the legends? I mean, I don't remember any songs or any legends, as you said, about the great trans warrior. I mean, that hasn't turned up yet, has it? No, there's no carving, no more tete, no tukutuku panels. There's absolutely nothing. And then trying to insert it as if it was so and using the treaty. Now, this using the treaty really irks me because people are in a position where, you know, this government has just race-baited so much that people think we as Māori are really privileged. Mm. Yet the Māori I know aren't. Mm. But also, too, as you and I, I think, touched on it last time that we talked, right? There are definitely, there is an elite, a self-appointed elite within Māori Dim right now who have gotten themselves into positions and power of governance. Dr. Elizabeth Kirikiri, not for much longer, but, you know, she is a, a classic yes. example of the genre. And they are not representative of those quiet, achieving, hardworking Māori, either at home, within the whānau, at the rohi, on the marae, and all of those places who don't need to be sought and have accolades applied on them. They just want to do the mahi. They don't want to be bothered with any of this. But unfortunately, you have the likes of them who have gone and taken this ideology, which essentially is cultural Marxism at its core, it's been run through via a few dead French philosophers and the American academic system and has come out into this critical social justice behemoth that we have today. They've looked at that and thought, oh, we can use that. They've taken it, applied a, a New Zealand bent on it, and then they're using it really, I think, to just establish uh, their own power and their own status and damn the torpedoes for anyone else in Māoridom. Yes, and uh, I think uh, my sister Philippa said it best when she goes, this is attacking the very bedrock of our civilization." I thought, oh, yes, this, you're right. This is what this is doing. You know, Māori dim aside, this whole gender identity is attacking the bedrock. And these philosophers, you know, and now we're celebrating John Money, the known Peter Rast, and him and Kinsey. I mean, what? You know, it's just what? No, 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 no. Their research was absolutely abhorrent. I, I don't know if you've read it, Murray, but these men were given live children mm. to pedophiles and then they have to had to self-record the child's reactions to being raped. And of course they all got recorded as orgasms. This is still what's running all the sexual health education stuff throughout the states and everywhere. You know, the hey Hakaputanga said no foreign interests. And now this is as foreign as we can get from who we are as people. And it's just in our face. And, you know, they just listen to WPATH, which is the World Health Transgender Health, yada, yada. And we have PATHA here. And we've got Jamie Veal, who's on both. He's a pommy man who thinks he's a woman. Is he and, the eunuch? Yes, yes, they're, they're the ones pushing the eunuch identity. And, and I'm really angry about that when I think of our strapping young Māori men. 
You're turning them into eunuchs for your own self-gain. How dare you? How dare you? Mm. This isn't real. This isn't true. It's all experimental, and you're pushing it through. We've got, you know, half a dozen countries that said, oh, 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 hold up, hold up. We've got lawsuits happening in the States, lots Mm. of lawsuits happening. There's some coming through the UK as well. You know, it's just so typical. Women are saying, hold, hold, hold on, and they're going, shut up. The thing I really find sad about this too is that they've gone and used, I, I spoke to Professor Sheila Jeffries last week and oh, they've lovely. gone and I said to her, we were talking about how a lot of the stuff has gone, they've gone and taken all the hard work that particularly gay and lesbians have made just for equal human rights and dignity. Mm-hmm. That then gets achieved and then all of it now has been weaponized and they have turned it all against them. And I said to her, you know, they especially lesbians, are so not down with this. And they're being suppressed in silence. Again, not just women, but in lesbian women. You know, I mean, I just see, you know, when I first started um, learning about this, I don't know, six years ago or something, I was thinking, oh, that's just men trying to get into lesbians all over again since forever. But, you know, we're being told that girls have a penis and boys have babies. Well, that's wrong. You know, To me, you are stealing children's identity before they've grown into it. And that's without medication or telling them they're born in the wrong body. You're taking their identities off them. Mm. And, and then all this birth certificate. How do people find their genealogy? They're looking for their father, but dad's now a woman. Medically, I think we all have the human right to know our biological DNA, our whakapapa. You know, I believe that is a human right to know this. I could be wrong here, but I believe women carry the haemophilia gene. We don't get it for obvious reasons, but we carry it. How are you going to find out that when the birth certificates are changed? You know, there's a lot of repercussions from this and there's nothing but vanity papers. And and to say that Māori celebrated this and we took it as a gift because they came to teach us. What a load of rot. But if, if we don't put a halt to this, and because it works in really well to my last interview about the state changing the language, by the time my moko, who's five, by the time she's 10, everything Kitty Kitty's saying will be taken as sooth, mm. and the reality will be lost. She's trying to change tikanga. Tikanga never changes. Kawa changes. You're changing our tikanga, and it never changes. Tikanga is firm. It's set. It is the kawa that changes around where we go. You know, for 103 iwis, you can't tell me she's consulted with three, let alone 103. Talking to each other in parliament isn't consulting, eh? Because I'm sure that's what they do. She'll probably, you know, look over at Kitty when she's there. Hey, Kitty, what do you reckon? And she'll go, yeah. It's hardly a consultation. Hmm. And these elite Maldives, and this is why I'm against co-governance as well for that very reason. You know, since when do these elites get the right to not have public consultation? That they just sign it off. That's pitting hapu and iwi and hapu and whānau against each other just on say-sos and personalities. It's ridiculous. Hmm. And it's also who gets to set the priorities as well, because surely, I mean, there's been these shootings recently, not just up the road from you, and a lot of them are gang related and all of the stuff going on. Surely there are bigger fish to fry within Māori communities right now than Elizabeth Kitty worrying about entrenching language mannerisms and the like into those sorts of <laughs> and, bills. I mean, I've come off the Māori role because I'm just 
tired of their pontificating and grandstanding. New Zealand Māori youth are killing themselves at a higher rate than our entire population. We've got 50% of them leaving school being illiterate and they want to dance around and pontificate over some bullshit. I'm, I'm not on to it. So I took myself off the Māori role as a protest. You know, there's far more reaching urgent needs for Māori than this. So from your perspective, what are some of the things? What, like, if Di Landy were in politics, Di Landy were in politics, and the, and the political party of common sense, what would be your three key factors for Māori right now? Right now it would be lose the gender ID because mm-hmm. it's sterilising our whakapapa. It's tearing it asunder. Get rid of this these elite co-governance. Co- I mean, Tamahiri hasn't even paid his loan back. There'd be none of this stuff happening. You see, for me, having your hand in the till, you lose all credibility. Well, which till? I think there's more than one, isn't there? That's right. You know, and I just get pictures of a whole lot of piggies at the trough. But um, so so there'd be none of this bloody backhanding nepotism rubbish that's been happening. I thought we had a party hopping law against that, but all oh, doesn't appear to be. So yeah, we'd get rid of gender ID, co co governance would go as well. And then, I mean, it's such a big ask, Murray. You know, we've got the housing issue. We've got the poverty issue. You you know yourself when you go visit your people out the country, they are, it's grinding poverty because they can't do anything on their land. And then if we get those SNA in, SNA, they'll never be able to build on their land. Actually, that's a really good point. So is Māori land subject to SNAs as well? I believe so. I believe so, from what I've been reading. I mean, I could be wrong, but from what I've been reading, and then as as you know, you can't get a mortgage on Māori land because of the um, multiple owners and what have you. Um, you can't get loans on it. So, yeah, I, as far as I know, SNA is across everywhere. All this stuff's come in the marae. I said it last time. I'll say it again. Get the government out of our marae. Mm. And then, of Get course, you throw it, and you and you throw the extra complexities that we have on the east coast, of course, with yes. um, a number of areas now falling under these uh, categories in terms of rebuilds and compulsory purchasing. Well, that that is a conundrum in itself. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. for a lot of these iwi and um, hapu, they've. You know, it's taken a long time to either hold on to that land, get that land back, settle that land, and now all of a sudden they're saying, "Oh no, you can't live there and you can't build there because you're not going to be." covered because there could be a cyclone or we're not going to support you if you choose to stay you know you're just hamstrung before you've even started i don't agree with co-governance and the reason i don't agree with it is because it's the elites again getting away without public consultation so Mm. they you know and setting the hapu and iwi and whanau against each other just on someone say so but it would be like being at home on the marae and having an argument and and then instead of sorting it out with the iwi, you go and ring the police. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, two different systems, choose which one. But I do believe Māori land is part of the SNAs and, and you know, they have enough trouble building on it. Um, all the crime, this hotel living, and it's just generation after generation. Mm. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think they could have built a few more houses myself. One of the things I do wonder about too is the level of 
uh, government support and not enough in terms of supporting Māori either to be within those wider extended family groups to stand on their own two feet and live self-sufficiently. And as you said, education is the ticket out. Actually take that education and actually do something with it and be able to have these careers. But then the flip side of that is those that have had all of those privileges and done with that are some of the ones that are currently sitting in the beehive, believing that, oh, yeah, we're out here now, but we're better than everybody else and do as I say and not as I do. Yeah, yes, and pulled the ladder up after them. Yeah. yeah. You know, just, whoa. Yeah, it's um, it's really sad. I'm, I'm really saddened by all this race baiting because I love being a Māori. You know, I was up at Parihaka just the other week and, you know, visiting whānau and I just love it. And then, you know, you get on social media and, oh, gosh, it's so north and south. You know, oh, they're getting 50 bucks to go to the doctors. Shouldn't they go to the doctors anyway? I'm thinking, well, they probably would, but um, the car's not registered, the car's not warranted and they've got no petrol. What do you suggest? Mm. Um, well, this is so. This is one of the things. So, I covered that the Māori Health Authority report, right? Yeah. And one of the things that frustrated me with it was, it's been a year, and it was the lack of outcomes, and the fact that even when they identified areas like exactly what you're talking about, those social issues in regards right. to access, because a good chunk of Māori live in rural communities, so yes. access is always going to be an issue. I mean, my aunt is a district nurse, and she has been a nurse up on the East Coast for forever. She's in her 80s. She still gets dusted off to go and help with clinics sometimes because they can't get staff, or the phone call will go, and because, of course, they'll breeze in up from town, they'll come in, they'll try and do a clinic at the the little district hospital there. And then, of course, people are not turning up, and they're like, well, of course, they're in the paradigm of, oh, here's an appointment, here's the date, they'll just turn up. It's like, well, yes, but they don't actually even understand that often to get to that appointment at that little regional base, it could still be another 90-minute to two-hour trip on a what is a glorified dirt track. Yes. All of those elements are not actually understood by those in town. And and then even in town, it's it's the same example as the mum of four kids, they've all got bung ears, and instead of putting all their appointments out the air department on one day, there every day, you know, instead of all together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. And that's where the disappointing thing for me was with that authority, right? There are a lot of really incredible, I had quite a rant about this, there are some really incredible people who are actually working with Māori Health doing some great jobs. I hooked up and dropped some stuff off during the flood relief with um, the Haora, Turanga Haora up in Gisborne. And they're doing great work, you know, great yes. work around diabetes and diet mm-hmm. and getting all this really good stuff. And this authority had the ability to potentially apply a much better, more cohesive framework to get outcomes. And it's achieved nothing yeah. in a year, nothing. So all that's gone and happened, the road to hell is paved with lots of good intentions. And Māori have had the, has been screwed the pooch yet again. Again, you know, I I see, uh, you know, no matter what name you give it, you're just getting fat off the backs of my people. You can call it research, you can call it a health authority, but it's one and the same. We know the outcomes, we know the problems, they haven't changed, they're still the same. I mean, they might be a bit more expensive, but we know this stuff, Mm. you know, it's, it's not a secret. 
And like I say, I just, I just view it as, oh, yeah, just getting fat off the backs of people. And, and you know, you've got your PhD through doing that. Good on you. But how did you help the Iwi? Because I don't think your average Kiwi understands the grinding poverty that these rural Māori are living under because they're on their sovereign land. I mean, all, all good and well that they're on their land and power to them. And Because I know a few Māori that live sovereign without any government help. And it's not an easy walk to be completely sovereign no benefits anything like that just all the work and they're on their land you know that isn't easy to do the kids aren't registered anywhere you know they don't have birth certificates they've only got marae records <laughs> and so it's been really nice to see children accepted to mainstream school on the marae records so mm. that's that's a turn up but you know and so it should be so you know, because now the birth certificates are meaningless. There's no point registering your baby. You can lie. You can say you had a bloody boy when you had a girl. It's just what? It's just madness. So all this money, it's just what is it? Good money after bad. Just throwing buckets of money we don't have at middle management. Because <laughs> mm. You know, like it's middle management or they would have had outcomes. You know, you're all sitting around in your meetings where you all got your flash cars cruising around, staying in a nice hotel, watching the kids on their bare feet. Yeah, well, one of the things I talked to Marty about, who I do the media piece with, is I said to him, we've gotten to a point now where I think a lot of people have forgotten, like when when I was a kid, if something needed to happen in the small rural school that I was in, and there was like 60 at this school, so it's a small school, uh, it was about 60, 70% Māori, if you needed something, the community got together, they had a working bee and you made it happen. You didn't sit around and wait for the ministry to provide it because you could have no. been waiting there for forever. And I think that's where we're getting to. And actually, this is something that Māori do better than anyone else. Oh, my God, yeah. And I mean, I, mean, I they absolutely. can fundraise and organise and yes. pull together and do all of those things. And I think those are skills that they've gotten to a point where it's almost, in a way, not necessarily going completely sovereign, but certainly get, getting to a point where it's kind of like, you know what? No, we're going to sort this out ourselves. Just leave yes. us to it. Thanks, but no thanks. You know, yes. you can keep your gender woo-woo over there. We're going to do this yeah. for the kids. And, I mean, yeah. Māori is seriously practical people. If you read there, you know, if you know anything about being Māori, it is practicalities. We're not stupid. It's almost like we're a complex hierarchical structure or something. You know, just, whoa. But I, I remember I was out um, to Whanua Apanui one Christmas mm. and the nanny was doing the washing. I was going, oh, nan, let me, let me, I'll do it for you and pushed her out of the way. And so, you know, my 30, 40-year-old was in the sink and, of course, the ass fell out of the sink. <laughs> of course it did. Within an hour, there was a sink on a trailer coming down that driveway because that's the community. Yeah. You know, and those communities, even during COVID, looked after themselves. You know, I think because um, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming yes. you're up what round to Kaha somewhere around there. That's exactly where I was when this yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 yeah, those communities are incredible, and they and they just get on with it. There is something that for all of us that we need to learn from that is is the getting on with it. And a lot of the freedom is, I think, have done that to an extent, but I think we need to do it even more and actually take a lot more people on that journey with us and just sort of say, you know what, actually saying no from time to time isn't actually a bad thing. It's a complete sentence. When we were organising Posey's first visit, and because it was just so thorough and I 
you know, very easily said and casually, not easily, casually said, oh, because it's just like on the marae. And that was my mind. All the nannies were running through my head and and what have you, because I used to be a cook on the marae. So, you know, you don't just cook. No. <laughs> there's a million there's a million things to that as well. But And, and so it was run like the marae and you just listen to auntie. Mm. And, and that's how we do it. And everyone who knows anything about being Māori knows, listen to auntie. Yeah. <laughs> yes, or nan. And, and that's another bugbear with me with Kitty Kitty because she says, you know, that our elders need re-educating. Hush your mouth. Just hush your mouth. How dare you? Māori have never, ever gone to institutions for their mātauranga. We have learned everything we know at the feet of our elders. And I'm really offended that she believes they need re-educating. Mm. You know, it really offends me when, you know, our komatu and kui and, you know, like if they say jump, you ask them how high. Yeah. And and then now they need re-educating on this new woo-woo. And because everyone's just head down and butt up trying to put bread on their table, you know, a lot of things are passing people by. But where was this gender woo-woo 10 years ago? Oh, no height nor hair. I mean, the UK's had a 4,400% increase in 10 years of young girls. This is a social contagion and people need to wake up. It's not like being a goth. Um, you know, we might as well start calling anorexics fatty because that's how much therapies and what they're doing. Oh, to do this too mouldy, I'm just, oh, no. Just, oh, no. You know, like I was thinking about Nanny, you had her moko. And because, you know, our old people kind of do what they're told mostly if, you know, they've been brought up in that way and know the parky and no best girl, get to school and all this stuff. And so, you know, what about Kui who's got her moko because both the parents are in jail and then they come out and their kids are being bloody transed. What what happens to Kui then? What what happens to that family? Where does she take this this grief and sorrow and pain for doing mm. so wrong by her moko? If, if and when she wakes up, that she's rendered her fucker papa sterile. You know, we, I don't know where Nanny's going to take that, mm. apart from to her grave. You know, it's really serious stuff, eh, Barry? I know I'm, you know, a bit blasé and what have you, but I, I think these things and think, oh, good, yeah, that poor queen, because I can see it happening. Like, I'm, I personally would like to be able to go and do the gang pads and speak to them about this because it's their kids that are in state care. Let's look at that scenario with the gangs, because, I mean, that whole thing in Apotiki happened since we spoke last. Yes. There are now more gang members than there are police in this country. The gang tensions haven't gone anywhere, and if anything, they've amplified and they've gotten worse. I live in an area of a country that if you are of a certain colour or you're going to a certain part of town, you need to be very mindful of the colours that you're wearing. Yes, where do you go with that? I mean, what what is the attraction for young Māori within those organisations? Belonging, power, excitement, drama, drugs, alcohol. Um, so how do you I, wrestle that back? Yeah, and, you know, I always come back to where there is no hope, there is no fear. The gangs are just, whoa, completely out of control. They're all powerful. and. A lot of it is thanks to the 501s, you know, from what I've been told, those guys come from Aussie and there's a selection of patches waiting for them. Mm. So youth, you know, they've dropped out of school because they weren't getting attention. Youth, you know, mum and dad both working. 
they're left to look after the younger siblings. If you, like, look at Porirū schools, you know, they're all red. I mean, it's everywhere. And for a kid who's left to their own devices, whose parents are out working or boozing, but they're not always boozing, you know. Um, I remember doing the stats for why Kmart got put in Porirū, and that was because, like, 80% of Porirū was employed. And that's yeah. why it got put there. And, yeah. you know, so what the media portray and, and what the government tell us is entirely different to what's actually real. But, you know, I'm born and bred Porirua and you look at it and, you know, when you've got nothing, it does seem like it's something to hang on to. And then you get the, um, you know, addictions, of course, running through, mm. but all the excitement, the drama, the better you are, the better reputation you have and you're cooler and you're neater. And this is, the, you know, it's like with the homeless. You take away their homelessness, what have they got? What's their identity? And I guess, too, the disillusion of whānau as well, particularly in those areas. And you've got some that have very, very tight whānau networks, but then, as you said, where's the excitement? You know, if the, if all they know is the coast or uh, their small sort of area, they, I mean, it, that, that's curiosity, isn't it? Natural curiosity. Yes. They're wanting to do something more. And instead of channeling that curiosity into education, they channel it to, to what's right there on their back doorstep. And also like education costs. I, I know I had my boy in a private boarding school, what, 15 years ago or something, maybe even 20, and it was 15 grand then. Good education costs. I mean, the state education, well, now the REC is there and they don't want to teach biology and physics and science. Well, you know, homeschool now, I say, you know, you might as well just go to school to eat your lunch. I never thought all those sayings would become true, but look at it now. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, you can pay for the education and be locked in that box. That isn't an exciting box. Or you can go in the one that's right out your back door because you know half the participants anyway because they're your cousins. You're going to get looked after because your cousins are in there or your bros or mm. it's drugs, excitement, drama, acceptance, belonging, whirling around. And goes, well, What have we got for youth these days? You know, I think it's a really... And I, I know every generation says that, oh, we had it harder or you had it harder. Oh, it's so different. It's so changed. I think navigating adolescence now would be one of the most trickiest, hardest tasks to come out unscathed. Oh, fully agree. I mean, I've got two teenage sons, oh, both yes. in high school. How do you parent sons, and you're a mother of sons, how do your parents' sons to actually let them know that their masculinity is okay? Yes. It's just got turned on its head, hasn't it? Mm, it you is. know, it's okay to be a, a boy. It's okay to be a man, be a good man. Boys don't hurt girls. Men don't hurt women. It's simple. <laughs> and also the, the, the whole elements of, of respect, you know, yes. respect in your elders, respect in uh, teachers, respect in your fellow classmates, respect for family, respect for other authority figures. But then we've lived through this crazy time where those authority figures have broken a social contract with us. So how do you then navigate that? And then if you, as you said, if you're someone living within Māoridom, those contracts have been broken again and, and again, again. Yes. and again. I mean, how, how are youth meant to respect the police when they've only just seen them doing raids on their whānau? 
you know, and the police come in in the dead of night and pull half of them out, and or they're there early in the morning, or you know, there was a story about um, I think it was Fakatani. And, you know, the police would go there every fortnight, every Thursday, because that's the day they could do their quota of tickets for unregistered, unwarranted cars. Do you not think these people would have legal cars if they could? It's mm. not a choice to be mm. driving around in a bloody jalopy that exhaust leaks and windows don't shut and it's not legal. That's not a choice. New Zealand's got a very punitive thread in running through its um, society. Like at the moment, I'm I'm a bit ha with the corrections. I've been ha with them for years, but Rumataka hasn't had in-person visits for a year. It's all audio-visual. And I believe Arahata, it's closer to 15 months. So what, all are they I still trying it, to cite the COVID? No, no, just until further notice. And so I see that. It's the state tearing Fano apart. Because not everyone in jail is a murderer or a rapist. You know, there's a few pot smokers in there and fraudsters and what have you. You know, that's just tearing Fano's apart. Whether mum or dad's in there for three months, six months, a year, six three months is a long time in a little guy's life. Mm. And then you're on screen like this for a visit. It's hard enough to talk to kids on the phone, let alone on a screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like when I ring my moko to say goodnight and that, and it's irrelevant, you know, <laughs> you just try and be jolly <laughs> and have a conversation about anything or what have you. And and so corrections is actively undermining the whānau unit mm-hmm. by no in-person visit. We've only just stopped chaining women up giving birth. That's mental to me. <laughs> I just find that really abhorrent. Yeah, well, I see they're on a massive recruitment drive at the moment because they've got drastic shortages in corrections. I mean, there was a good chunk of them that mandated out, much yes. higher than in other areas, because obviously they're awake to things and they've not yeah. gone back. So why don't you just get all the ones that were mandated out? I mean, all the prisoners are mandated to have the jab when you're in there. Goodness me. Like our hospitals. And then we're sending ambulances to Ukraine. You know, people are, <laughs> you know, just waiting hours for an ambulance and we're sending them offshore. I think that's bizarre. You know, you're reading all the time, oh, I waited 24 hours at A&E. Oh, I was waited an hour and a half for the ambulance. Before this even began, I waited 40 minutes when my sister had a heart attack in my lounge for an ambo. Whoa, and we're sending them offshore. I, 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 this is going to sound like I'm crazy and that's okay. But it's like... We've really sold out. And then this big BlackRock deal to make us the cleanest. We are the cleanest. Anyway, our farmers and fishermen, they do farming and fishing sustainably because they still want their jobs. They're not going to wreck it so they take their jobs off themselves. You know, it's mental. <laughs> you know, just, and because my son was a fisherman, so I know a little bit about the industry. And I, yeah, yeah, no, those fishermen take care all right. It's not um, a big free fall out there. You know, it's not like bloody Captain Bly. But, you know, and it is sustainable and it is quoted. And they, they want to still be fishing in 10 years. Farmers still want to be farming in 10 years. And then when people go on to me about climate change, I just show them... Um, Marine traffic app. Go and look at that. That's your climate scam right there. The ocean's full of big ships. 
Hey, have you ever looked at marine traffic? No, no, I've looked at the air traffic one, though, plenty of times. Oh, that's that nothing on the marine one, trust me. <laughs> Actually, no, tell a lie, tell a lie. Oh, I have looked at it yeah. because of my other life, we do sometimes, we import some stuff and we often get it in container. Yes. And, you know, no ship tracker. We yes. track, you know, it'll yes. be like, where is that ship? Where's that ship yep. with our container? Um, yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong. Well, oh my gosh, we better not open the environmental box dial. We'll never yeah. get off the line. Yeah, let's put, put uh, that lid back on. Yeah, let's, let's, put that, let's shelve that lid for next time, shall we? Yeah. Oh, look, there is, it is always a joy to talk to you. So what's sort of next, what's next for Di in the next few months or so? Are you Have you got anything in the pipeline or planned um, other than heading up to, to Auckland, if you can manage it? If I can manage it, I'll do Auckland. Uh, Monday, my sisters and I were going outside the Labour office in Kapiti with um, a whole lot of billboards we've just made about children and children can't consent and no child's born in the wrong body, humans can't change sex and puberty's not an illness. So we'll just march around the Labour office till we're told to move on. Just submissions, we will be, if this bill gets open for sort of Ketakiri's human rights bill, to push in the LGBTQIWTAFs. If that does get to submissions, Manawa Hinekorero will most definitely be submitting. And we say no, this will open the door to hate speech and, and to more madness with the birth certificates. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, they, I mean, look, these, that discussion document, you know, the digital harms, but I mean, they, look, they got pushed back, but they're desperate to try and get something across the line, aren't they? And, and they'll just keep and, lobbing yep. grenades. Yes, and this will be a nice big back foot. The only positive is that it separates sex and gender. We don't need a law for that. We know, you know, like I don't think we need to make that a law. I'm not too sure about the flimsy mannerisms and characteristics. Like I, I don't know how you can legislate that and how you can legislate that it all used to happen after saying that there's no evidence. You know, that this never happened. So, you know, I just want all this race baiting to stop. It's really, really horrid. It's even worse if, if this is can be so. It's even worse than when I grew up when my mother was repeatedly attacked verbally and physically for being mouldy. Mm. At least that was very overt. You know, all this stuff is undercover, all covert, all, you know, and a few elites are up there, you know, creaming the pie for themselves. Well, we just keep having these courageous conversations, Di, and we'll do everything that we can one little bit at a time. I'm talking to Di Landy from Manawahini Korero, and as always, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me again this morning. Thank you for having me. Don't disappear. Still more great content here to come with Reality Check Radio and Counterculture, including Media Matters with Marty and the Woke News of the Week. You with Marie here on Counterculture on Reality Check Radio, and Di is a true taonga, a national treasure, and I hope you find some comfort and courage in her words. I certainly do. I'd love to hear your comments and thoughts. Email me to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text to 2057. More music now. I don't know why the song instantly came to mind to play after speaking with Di. It's Texas and Say What You Want here on RCR. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. 
We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. You are with Marie here on Reality Check Radio. Joining me this morning is Walt Heyer, author, activist and speaker and somebody with a very interesting journey, which I can't wait to have shared. Good morning, Walt. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Look, you have a very interesting journey, particularly a gender journey. Can you share that with us this morning? Yeah, I mean, my um, gender distress, if you want to call it that, identity distress started when I was four years old, when my grandmother made me a purple chiffon dress. And um, I had shown an interest in, in, she was a seamstress, so I showed an interest in women's clothing. So she just promptly, at uh, four years old, made me a purple dress, put me in. It was fit fit me perfectly. And she told me how cute I looked. So that began the um, uh, gender-affirming thing, which, when looking back on it, I see it quite differently because I'm 82 years old, so 78 years ago. I see it today as child abuse. Yours went beyond that, though, didn't it? I mean, you actually then entered into not only diagnosis, but full transition. Yeah, I mean, it included surgery and hormones. And, and yeah, that came uh, when I was 42 years old. So 38, right, 38 years later after the purple dress. But <clears throat> it came a long time after because no one was discussing the words and, and, you know, there were no words to attach to these things. I've learned a lot, really, not so much from my own story, but actually from working with thousands of people who've contacted me on my website, sexchangeregret.com. And so um, whatever I'm speaking to today really is kind of a culmination of working with a lot of people. So I'm really speaking not just from my own experience, but the echo comes from many of the people that I've spoken with. So to me, it's very troubling. And I, you know, I I understand that there are cultures who accept and embrace this. um, But I think there's, there's some, a real need to take a little uh, deeper respect for what we're doing to children in terms of uh, cross-dressing them and so forth. Yeah, we're certainly seeing an alarming trend, especially amongst schools now, where social affirmation and social transition is not only accepted but encouraged. And the thing for me as a parent is all of this is genuinely and usually done without parental consent. Are you seeing that in the United States? Yeah, I am. And I, you know, I stopped using the word transition and I stopped using the word transgender. Uh, because uh, the the fact of the matter is one of the things we don't spend a lot of time talking about is so far, no one in world history has ever changed their gender. You, it's not possible to do with hormones and surgery. Uh, women, uh, you sitting across from me are quite different from me. Um, your bone structure is different. Everything about you is different. I cannot become you no matter what I want to do. I, you know, they can do all the surgery and hormones they want. I can never become you. So um, it's in the culture thing aside, uh, what we're dealing with today is kind of an idea that has been planted in society that people can change their gender. It's just total nonsense. Mm. And and that's the part that's most disturbing to me because and and I I say cross-dressing me by my grandmother uh, was abuse. But let me explain what kind of abuse it is, because abuse is kind of a funny word. But it's emotional and psychological 
abuse. It's a, it's a different kind of abuse. You're you're telling somebody something that's just not possible to do that you can become someone else or that you need to be. And uh, the fact that she never said how handsome I was as a boy or how strong I you know, so she was, I, I call it the, the process is actually devaluing the person when you begin to cross-dress them. Then you dehumanize them by giving them a different name and start putting hormones in them. And then you totally destroy them uh, when you cut off body parts. And so the only thing that you can do, and that's why I stopped using the language, the only thing you can do is feminize a man or masculinize a woman. You cannot change their gender. It, it, it's fixed and innate from the time of conception. In fact, they had a, a study a long time ago, and it was kind of interesting. They asked people in the science community about gender, where, when does your when does this start? And they all said it at conception. But they put them in a situation where it was about the LGBT and the ideology. And they all said, well, it, it happens. It's assigned at birth. You know, they couldn't, they, you know, they started buying the language. We know that it's fixed and innate at the time of conception. It's just, you know, this, this is the part that probably rubs me the most in terms of uh, we're, we're, we're acting like we don't know what's going on out there. We're saying, oh, you're a transgender, you transition. When people write me, uh, I always tell them, I said, you know, you're not a transition, transgender, you've never transitioned. And the fact of the matter is, I haven't found the first case of gender dysphoria in the thousands of people I've worked with. Because mm, mm. your site is called Gender Regret. Talk me through regret and your yeah, experience. Yeah, well, re regret um, it, it, you know, it, it's, it happens to thousands of people. In fact, there's a, uh, r slash D trans Reddit site that has 50,000 people that regret it. So, um, I was just early on in the regret because they hadn't done many. Now, the more they do, the more people regret it. It's just kind of goes with the territory. Uh, regret means somebody lied to me and, and misrepresented what they were doing. Uh, they're not helping me. But what I've found is the most interesting thing I've found is that there are three primary things that cause people uh, or become the driving force behind people wanting to identify as a transgender person. <clears throat> the first one is, is what I refer to as a social contagion. And if the people in the audience or you or anybody want to look up what a social contagion is, this is really very interesting. It's not just some flashy word. Social contagion means that one person sees another person's. In the old days, they called it monkey see, monkey do, but that's that's a little hard to use. But um, social contagion, people just do what other people do. And so I've had kids in high school tell me they are afraid to not identify as a transgender because they will be ostracized from their friends. Mm -hmm. So there's a great deal of pressure. Then the second one is um, the online stuff, TikTok, anime, uh, pornography that kids have access to. TikTok has destroyed many lives. I mean, the internet has got a lot of good features, but TikTok and anime and pornography is not one of them. And so I've had people write me, uh, one young man, uh, he went through the surgery at 18 and contacted me at 19 and said he feels like a Frankenstein monster. I don't know why they did this to me. I said, well, you went and signed up. Why did you sign up for it? 
And he said, when I was 15, I became addicted to pornography. So it messed up his idea of what his identity was. And so, but it, but again, it doesn't have anything to do with gender. This is, this has to do with everything else, but gender, as I mentioned, social contagion, that's not about a gender. Um, The internet is really not, you're not struggling with your gender. It's about your identity. And then the, the third and probably most important one that I, I've really been able to help people with once they understand it is called adverse childhood experience. They're called ACEs. This is not some some new buzzword. It's been around for years. Universities and, and hospitals have studied it for years. There are 10 basic core ACEs. And if you happen to have one of these uh, traumatizing, 10 traumatizing events occur to you, then you're going to either end up like incarcerated, you're going to end up being an alcoholic, you're going to end up cutting yourself, you can end up identifying as a transgender. So what happened to me was I was sexually abused by my uncle. I was physically abused by my mom and my dad. All those are adverse childhood experiences. The cross-dressing is another one. So out of the 10 adverse childhood experiences, I had about five or six of them. And so, but what didn't happen was no one provided adequate therapeutic uh, treatment. They just, you know, going along, everybody said, well, just take hormones and surgery. No, you don't need them. You, you, need, you need a trauma therapist to deal with the trauma you suffered because you're not going to ever change your gender. So this is what regret ends up being when the people come back to me and we discover that they had some addiction to pornography or it was a social issue or they suffered some traumatic event during their childhood, we get them the proper therapy that they need for any one of those, whether it's an addiction, they can do, deal with the addiction. And these therapies, then what they report back is, once I get the proper therapy, this this whole thing becomes like, why did I do this? How come people don't guide people toward good therapy choices instead of just telling them hormones and surgery? You know, I've been doing this. I do it for free. I've been doing it for free. I, the 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 hospitals and stuff are making tons of money. The people mm-hmm. who do the surgeries are making over a billion dollars a year. I'm here for free to try to pick up the pieces that they cut off. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's pretty horrific to be telling a generation of children you can change genders when you can't. And it's pretty sad case when we're unwilling to sit down with a child and say, why don't you like who you are? And yeah. when I ask that question of a child, it's amazing what happens. They say, well, you know, my dad's an alcoholic or my dad's in jail or my mom died in a car accident or my dad died in a plane accident. There's all these events that encircled their early life. They had no way to, to cope. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of becoming someone else and escaping into this alternate identity, we call it a dissociative disorder. That's the clinical term is dissociation. We don't want, they do it. People who are in prison do this to survive. And so we have young children that have been harmed in many different ways or addiction. And, and they use this, they choose this as a way to survive until somebody like me comes along and helps them identify what happened and guides them out of this morass of nonsense. And helps them understand that, uh, you know, they're perfect the way they are. They don't need body parts cut off. Uh, They don't need hormones put in them. Um, And they're beautiful. Mm. So therapy, 
I know a number of these children, as you say, experience these ACE adverse child experiences. They potentially get to therapy, but then you have, for a lack of a better term, an activist therapist who yeah, decide well, I, how, what's yeah. the prevalence of that? Yeah. Well, I when, anytime I talk about therapy, I always tell them, look up the therapist's name, look on their website, and if they're a gender-affirming therapist, run the other way, don't go there. Mm. So uh, never never go to a gender-affirming therapist. They only have one agenda, and it's not to help you. Sad mm-hmm. to say that all they're trying to do is, you know, put another notch in their gun and say, you know, I, I help somebody transition. No. So there's a, there is a lot of therapists. Uh, if you keep digging, um, many of them are underground, to be honest with you. You got to keep digging. But you, you can a lot of clues come from their website and social media posts. And you can kind of tell where they're coming from. And if they're not sort of supporting the rainbow and all that sort of stuff, you got a pretty good chance of finding a good one. I always suggest that people find a good trauma therapist and uh, they don't have to be a, a Christian therapist. There's a lot of non-Christian therapists that are quite sound in their thinking, but there are some very good Christian therapists that are also excellent at what they do. So, um, I, you know, and there's actually a few Christian therapists that are lousy. And mm. and I and I point them out when that comes up. So just because they have Christian by their name doesn't mean that they're good and healthy and sound people to go mm. to either. Well, let's. I want to talk and look at some of the misconceptions around this, and there's a few. And you've actually just alluded to one, and one is that if you were on the pro-trans side of the fence, they would have you believe that if you're dealing with anybody with faith, that they're going to try and put you in some form of conversion therapy and essentially pray away the gay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. what do you say to that? Yeah, this is this is so easy. This is like you know, t-ball. That little mm-hmm. game where they put this is so easy. The only people engaged in conversion therapy are the gender clinics because the people like myself and the therapist are only trying to keep the people held together. We're not going to trying to convert anybody. You you know, know something else. Ninety five percent of the thousands of people that have contacted me are heterosexual people. They mm-hmm. don't deal with homosexuality. They don't have same sex attraction. Now, some of the men will cross-dress and they'll go, I'm a lesbian, okay, which yeah. is pretty non- nonsense. <laughs> uh, but there's a term for it. And if you hear a man say that, you can quickly say, you're not a lesbian, you're suffering from autogynephilia or transvestic fetish disorder. And I challenge every one of them. Um, so when we start using the proper terminology and move away from the LGBT nonsense, transgender, transition, all this other junk, actually, um, you'll find out that people are very receptive. This is really why I'm so successful. I mean, I've been, you know, I was in, as you well know, I was in New Zealand not long ago. Mm-hmm. And from New Zealand, I was Spain. And then I just got back from Poland and the Czech Republic. And I actually got my picture on the front page of one of the big newspapers in the Czech Republic um, because of me speaking out and talking just like we are today. Um, and the person who wrote the article is not a Christian. He, he he just was flabbergasted by what he learned and what different perspective you can take on this. And and he's he's kind of thinking, 
people need to stop and step back a little bit before we start cutting people's genitals off and filling them full of hormones and take a look at what's really going on. We call them comorbid disorders, um, the underlying reasons why people don't want to be who they are. Mm. So we've tackled that misconception. The other one that I get confronted with all the time is from those saying, if they do not allow this child to transition, they will be at a greater risk of detrimental mental health outcomes, including suicide. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, there's research. Yeah, let's forget what I say. Research, uh, and the best research has been done by Sweden, who uh, tracks every single person because they pay for it all. And Sweden, not me, reports that people who go through the hormones and surgery have a 19 times greater risk of committing suicide than if they don't. And they have a higher ratio of mental health issues if they take hormones and surgery. So most everything that I have found that they report being um, to help people actually is harmful to people. And we need to flip their script. It's just like conversion therapy. Come on, give me a break. We don't convert anybody. We're trying to keep them the way they are. They're not homosexual. They're not transgender. They're not bisexual. They're not any of these things. They're things that they saw on the internet. And if you sit down with them and find out that they were sexually abused like I was, you know, they got confused. I've, I've had actually kids tell me, they became adults, but they were abused as a kid, say they wanted to remove their genitalia, not because they wanted to be women, listen to this, because they didn't want anybody to touch them in their genitals again. So if I mm -hmm. took them off, then they won't, then people won't touch me. It became mm -hmm. a way to protect myself. So uh, we, we would be so much better off if we totally dismissed everything that the LGBT says, because mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's poppycock. What's a good word in, in no, New Zealand? Poppycock is just fine. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, I've got a couple others, but um, that'll work. Yeah, I think if you hear hear what they have to say and you realize that uh, the suicides with uh, this surgery have been reported since 1979, increased rates of suicide. The, the first gender clinic in New York, the Harry Benjamin Gender Clinic, uh, one of the people at the clinic who worked there for six years administering hormone therapy to people who've gone through this um, came out and said, I'm going to become a, he's, he was an endocrinologist. He said, I'm going to be a psychiatrist because the hormones and surgery are causing far too much, this is a quote, far too much unhappiness and too many suicides. Dateline, 1979. This has been going on since 79. You know, they try on the left, right, wherever they are trying to push this agenda, will try to erase. I've had studies that I've read 10 years ago, you can't even find that would show how absurd hormones and surgery are. But they're pretty clever about making sure things disappear. They'd like me to disappear. None of it's true. Uh, the harms are great. We're really in a battle to save this generation of children from total nonsense. So who seeks to benefit? What is the driver of this, especially now? Because it seems to be at a crescendo. What is the motivating factor for those behind all of this? Well, the motivating thing is the pharmaceutical companies, every time a child gets on hormone blockers, 
depending on the company, depending on where it's located in the world, will will benefit one hundred to three hundred thousand dollars in income per child because of the therapies. Yeah. Now, when I prevent people from going through it, I get zero. Right? They make money. I don't. I'm not here for the money. I'm here to save lives. And so the driving factor for the pharmaceutical companies and the surgeon, we have a surgeon in California makes one million three hundred and some thousand dollars a year. It's a man identifying as a woman cutting off genitals. So follow the money. We've always said follow the money. And I've actually had people that this individual did surgery on that contacted me with regret. I contacted Marcy Bowers is who it is. And I called Marcy. I said, you know, Marcy, I've got one of your clients here regrets it. And her response, his response um, was, it's his own fault. He wanted me to do it. And if they want it, if they want to do it, I'll do it. I mean, I also look at that and I think where is informed consent? Because I mean, inf- the foundation of informed consent is that the patient has to be fully versed of all outcomes. And I wonder with doctors like that, and from the stories I've heard, whether it be from therapy to medical intervention to surgical intervention, the whole concept of informed consent was scant at best and absent at worst. What have you noted with your... Yes, there there is no such thing. You know, in fact, I just got back from the Czech Republic. There, you have to sign a document saying that you cannot regret this. It actually states that you cannot regret this. Don't come back to me if you regret it, because we weren't, we're not going to do anything. And I, I, there's, there's a young man there. He's going through this. Uh, he had the surgery like a year and a half ago, and he regrets it. And they, they refuse to help him detransition. So we're getting lawyers involved, and, and we're going to get him the help, but it's probably not going to be from the institution that did the harm. It's pretty hideous, isn't it? When you when you boil it all down and you look at the number of people that we we can't even begin to talk to the people who've committed suicide about what happened to them. But that statistic has been relevant since 1979. And even in a, a UK Guardian, which is a pretty left-wing reg, right? The UK Guardian came out in, in July of 2004 it says sex change surgeries are ineffective, say researchers. The third paragraph down, it says people who go through this procedure years later are traumatized to the point of committing suicide. Even in the UK Guardian, they were reporting suicide after you go through this. So this whole, it's, it's, it's nonsense. I mean, Chloe Cole, who's been going around the United States, has been on television and all that, said that uh, they the clinic gave her male hormones because they they sat down with her and her mom and dad and they told the mom and dad she is going to commit suicide if you don't let her have male hormones and she will tell you that she almost committed suicide because she had the male hormones I've had a parent, I interviewed a parent here very recently. She had a harrowing story of both the school counsellor and the doctors using suicide as a lever to have the mother take her to the doctor to actually start this process off. Was her daughter actually suicidal? No. Of course not. They use that emotional lever. I mean, that to me is abuse towards the parent, emotional abuse towards the parent. No one ever says about that. 
So to that, to those parents, I mean, you're working with a lot of these children and I'm sure that you're coming up with parents who have deep concerns. What are oh. your advice to those parents? What can they do? Well, I, I let them know it's emotional blackmail. And and then I, re, I I let them see the stories that I've written because I've written a lot. My books, Paper Genders, Trans Life Survivors are both excellent books because I wrote them, of course. Um, they're bound to be. What, what I want them to know is that and, and here's what's interesting. I'm glad you asked this. Here's what's in When I talk to the parents and I start asking them about adverse childhood experiences, 100% of the time, the parent can identify an adverse childhood experience. And when they do that, the light bulb goes on and then they realize that's what happened. And I'm, I'm working with a, a young mom right now where um, the the child was a, a victim of a sexual predator. And, and, and mom admitted that she kind of dismissed it because she didn't want to deal with it. Now the daughter's suffering greatly because she didn't get therapy to deal with it. And, and then the daughter felt abandoned by mom because mom didn't see the importance of getting her to therapy. I think once we, we begin to screw our head back on straight, and, and stop using their nonsense language, because it is, I, I'm sorry, but we are harming people by using the language and telling kids you can take hormones and have surgery. We're, we're absolutely, dis we're, we're destroying an entire generation of children um, who will, here's, the other thing is the girls who wanna have babies will not be able to have babies. The boys who want to be a father cannot be a father. There's a there's a whole nother dimension to this where we're denying a generation of children who've taken these radical hormones and surgeries will not be parents. Yeah, but I also look at it as, as a much bigger picture as well. The entire sanctity of the core family has been yeah. eroded and destroyed whether Absolutely. that be becoming parents, whether that be living in stable relationships, all of it is under attack. And this is just one of the battlegrounds, is it not? Yeah, I, I, I liken it to somebody throwing a hand grenade in the middle of the family because everybody's going to get hurt. Mm. So where can people find you? So you alluded to before your books, but give us, uh, people have listened to this now and thought, oh, I like the cut of that man's jib. Where can we find information on Walt? Yeah, go to sexchangeregret.com and walthire.com. You can see uh, some of my faith-based stuff, but I work with every denomination. Um, I work with every, I work with people who don't even like God, who don't like anybody. I, I don't care. I'm not, I just, I'm here to help people uh, walk through these issues and, and better understand them so that they're not harmed needlessly by uh, unnecessary hormones and surgery. And so um, sex change regrets a great one. And I'm here to help. I'm so glad you had me on. Oh, I'm, it's been an utter delight to have you. So thank you very much. I've been talking to Walt Heyer. As he said, waltheyer.com or sexchangeregret.com are the websites to find him. Don't disappear. More great content still here to come on Counterculture with Marie on RCR. I get the feeling the theme for this morning's content is good, honest, authentic conversations. I would dearly have loved to have talked to Walt longer, but he's hitting the road again. And as we spoke, he had his bag and car packed, and I'm so grateful he could share such a powerful half hour. 
It's time for a little country. With this breakthrough single from 1992, this is Hal Ketchum and Past the Point of Rescue. Would you like to be a part of Reviving Honest Media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR, and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our Foundation Membership now at www.realitycheck.radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. And as we always do this time, every show, it's time to welcome Marty Gibson for Media Matters. Good morning. Good morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm good. Busy. I'm good. Busy yeah, very. one armed paper hanger, right? Uh, yeah, I am this week because my event is on this week. So I am, I feel like I'm, I'm juggling balls with right arms and left arms and two left arms and two right arms, but it's all good. Pressure makes diamonds. <laughs> As they say. Hey, um, speaking of pressure, I think how Chippy is feeling it. He's got to be feeling it. It's that feeling, I guess, that's uh, the political equivalent of bleeding to death. <laughs> you know, when you can feel the, the, your own blood warm on you and uh, it makes you feel a bit faint. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're referring to, of course, is the One News variant poll that came out on Monday. There are polls and then there are polls, and depending on who commissions the poll, they all reckon their poll is best. The One News Varian is sort of one of those ones that's considered gold standard. It was bad. It had um, Labour now, second poll that has shown Labour sitting in the 20s, 29% down four, National 37% up two, Act up one to 13, Greens up two to 12. And it showed last time they had New Zealand First on 3%, they've shown New Zealand First up to 4% on one, which means... That again, it's that trend. He's trending upwards in all these polls. He's in with a sniff. Yeah, I mean, the mystery is how they've held up so long. And I guess we'll, we'll get into that kind of mindset that you need to believe absurdities. Believing absurdities is right. And we are going to get into that. The uh, What that means in terms of seats in the House, it means that a National Act block will have 65, Labour Greens to Patamari 55, a clear 10 seat majority with five seats over that magical 60 seat mark. The trend is not good. The trend is not good. Preferred Prime Minister. Well, not good for who? Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> not good for Labour for sure. Preferred Prime Minister Hipkins was down three to twenty-one percent. Luxon was steady on twenty percent, so still twenty yeah. percent likes the bobblehead. I, I saw an interview with him. Actually, it was Kerry Woodham interview I listened to, and he actually did come across a lot better on that. So maybe mm. your friend's media training's uh, working on. Maybe he's been drilling being authentic. From what I understand at the meetings, he's been doing a lot of town hall meetings around the country and those have actually been received quite well. I think he potentially one-on-one -on -one is a lot better, but the reality... You hear that, of, don't you? You hear that he's actually a lot better one-on-one uh, -on -one than he is. I found that about Helen Clark too, you know, in person. She was quite attractive and charming. I did vote for Helen Clark for mm. two of the three cycles that she ran. And before you all go running, screaming to the hills, thinking, oh, my gosh, I was, it must have been a folly of youth. No, I didn't, because I lived in her electorate. 
And I knew her. She used to come into the, the place. She used to be across the road from me. And she used to come into the, my place of work. I used to see her in a professional capacity. She was a charming woman. She was very personable. And her superpower is she never forgot anybody. And it didn't matter how how or where she interacted with them. She had this incredible innate ability to remember people's names. And if she couldn't remember the name, the context in which yeah, they were. Yeah, you need that pl- to be in politics. I don't have that in spades. Well, she <laughs> she had it. And so years later, so I mean, this is, oh, I mean, it was the first two times round that I voted for her. Fast forward many years later, so I, by this stage, had I was actually living here in the Bay, so it would have been about 18-odd years ago. It was the last election before she went out and lost to John Key. And so she was flying in with her entourage to um, have a visit to the Bay. And I was flying out with my then boss up to Auckland for a series of meetings. And so we're at the airport and we were coming up to board our flight. She had just come off her flight. And as we're walking past each other in the terminal, she looks at me, I look at her and she was like, Marie, (laughs) it's been a long time. So good to see you. Yeah. Helen, it's great to see you. Amazing. And I said, I heard you're in the bay, but you know, we've put the weather on for you. I hope you have a lovely day. And off I go with my flight. My boss is sitting there his mouth on the floor, and he's like, you know her? And I was like, I lived in her electorate. She used to come into my previous job. And that was years ago. Like, I mean, I wouldn't have seen her for yeah. five years. I across the road years. from her, and she had these street corner meetings. And, yeah, again, in person, she came across a lot more warm-blooded than she did on TV. And, yeah, we were sort of having this meeting, and some there must have been a rugby game on or something, and some people went past who probably drunk and on bikes, and they went, ah! And she said, and that's why we don't want lights at Eden Park. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, there's something about the Sorcerer's Apprentices uh, in power now that makes you nostalgic for Clark and Cullen, isn't it? They weren't so bad. Indeed. But it also shows you the importance of that authenticity and personality. And that is something that um, that she had in spades. Mm. From what I understand, dear leader had it too. Look, I just I, I didn't see it personally, but many well, did. Old Lusker, when he was interviewed on uh, the Crunch last week, was very generous to Jacinda, uh, you know, and saying that she was a really nice person. That's the importance, I think, of actually getting out and doing those town halls, and good on Chris Luxon for doing it. And he has been hitting those roadshows hard. Look, it's a tried and true political tactic. And what we're referring to with Simon Lusk was the political tragic interviewed by Cam on The Crunch last week. Mm. Highly recommend you listen to it. It is a fantastic interview. The best political journalism in New Zealand right now, and it receives zero dollars from government. Is it a coincidence? Yeah, exactly. Well, that. What is so important, I thought, with that interview, he has worked for the Labour Party. He's anyone that will hire him, essentially. He is mm. a political Svengali who will craft a campaign to help candidates win. That's what he does. He knows that better than anything else. Now, for someone who works in the sphere of uh, marketing and sales and building businesses, as I've done, he had advice that not only wins political campaigns, but grow successful businesses. And his advice was, is you have to grow your base. You have to create a community. You've got to be authentic and actually put in the work, put in the FaceTime work and actually get out there and put the gumboots on and roll your sleeves up and get down and dirty with the people that you're there to represent. That's what wins campaigns. 
databases. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly know with the work that I do now as community is everything. The community that we've created with uh, with the day job, that community is what's going to get us through these recessionary times that, and, and it will help support us not only fiscally, but emotionally too. And I get to interact with a lot of these people this coming weekend, which I can't wait. Um, whilst it's a lot of work for me now, that will fill us the cup. And that's important. So I do give Luxon credit for going up, putting the work in and doing that. And as we know, Winston, he's been at it for a while. It's how he won the by-election in Northland. It is that old adage of shaking hands and kissing babies, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like most people, I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to a change of government. I'm mindful as well not to get my hopes up too high mm. uh, because I guess with Luxon, you know, one of the most telling things for me was that question that John Ansell asked him at a meeting. You know, if you could satisfy yourself that adding fluoride to water decreased the IQ points of young people and the jab wasn't safe or effective and that there was no principles of the treaty, let alone sanctioning co-governance, would you change your mind and your policy? And he just snapped, no. Mm. That's where you don't get your hopes up too much. And I mean, you know, with Winston Peters the other day when he was interviewed and they were taking him to task about having Kirsten Murphy as a candidate, there was so much he could have pushed back with that wouldn't have gotten him into any trouble around conspiracy theories, just with raw data and just commitment to freedom of speech. He just wilted. I just felt again, ah, oh, I've been suckered in by hope. Hopium. Mm, Hopium. So Andrew Vance, I'm going to jump there because in her column, she said we really need to start using the L word about politics. And the reason I bring this up is because there was the moment this week uh, where Nicola Willis called out Grant Robinson. She found a, a fiscal error in the numbers mm. that they did when they put out their policy. I think she does actually some great work for the National Party. I think a lot of people, if they're going blue, they're not necessarily going there for Chris, they're going for Nicola. No. Especially a lot of those female voters that voted, what was it, 400-odd thousand, yeah. Cam was saying the other day. Yeah. Uh, voted Labour last time. So Nicola is doing a good job and she's doing that deputy leader scrappy at the heels calling out stuff job, which then of course prompted our friend Squealer to have a wee moment, uh, have a wee moment on radio where he said, that's a lie. She's um, she's lying about that. And Andrea Vance is sort of saying, well, people, it's a, it's a word that they don't use. She said here, MPs are banned from using unparliamentary language in the chamber, which normally includes to referring to their rivals as liars. This etiquette generally spills over into the real world. That's why last week the little squabble between Grant Robertson and Nicola Willis got reporters excited. The finance minister was upset because Willis had claimed a rift had developed with the PM, Chris Hipkins, over the new GST policy. That's a lie. She is lying about that, Robertson said on a radio show, over 24 hours, and that was the claim that was thrown out repeatedly. But see, the thing is, is Squealer needed to pop himself off to Damascus, obviously, to get himself over that rift. That's well, obviously well, how you do it. Yeah, just watching him defend the GST policy. I mean, it's interesting to watch someone when you think they're lying. You know, you can watch him. He knows it's a terrible idea. And I think, you know, we're talking about uh, Labour's decline in fortunes in the latest poll. If you want um, an inflection point in the graph where it starts heading for the low 20s, which I think is where Labour will go, 
I think that'll come to be regarded as the moment that it all started to go bad because no one thought that was a good idea. I'll go back to that story about the conversation I had with a checkout operator who said, you know, half of the people who go through a checkout put between six and 12 items back. And I said to her, what do they put back? And she said, oh, the good stuff, the fruit and vegetables. Mm. So, you know, if you reduce the price of that, do you think, what, they're going to put the Coke back? No. No, of course they're not. Everybody universally lambasted it, even, I mean, even Shane DePoe wasn't overly fond. Andrea goes on to say, for years, I've watched MPs tell bare-faced, dead-in-the-eye untruths. I can give you half a dozen examples from this year alone, when a senior politician has said one thing and I know different version of the of events to be true. Like, well, actually, I think you can be in politics without lying. Do you know what really upset me about that? It's like, what? okay, Andrea, and why why wasn't that reported? Yeah. Because isn't that your job, Dullin, to yeah. actually be there as the fourth estate to actually call things out? And if And if you're not doing that... Even if you don't call it a lie and you call it an untruth or whatever it is, aren't you just then becoming an enabler to bad behaviour? Well, I was thinking about this actually when I was walking my dog. I know that people in the media are listening, listening to Reality Check Radio, and we know this because when we break new facts or whatever, they pop up mysteriously and uncredited in, in the mainstream media. But I think it's worth having a, a moment of compassion for journalists you know I mean, they've got mortgages to pay and you know a lot of them have probably gone from drinking one bottle of wine a night to two two and a half you know i'd extend an invitation to them you know if, if, if there are things that you'd love to be reporting on but you can't because ultimately your news agency that you work in for is owned by blackrock and you're not allowed to give us a call i'm happy to uh to uh observe the usual source protection Act as a conduit. Tell us the things that you're not allowed to say, and and we'll say them. And I hope if you're listening to us, you know that we we act in good faith. We don't bark at every passing car, and and like I, I would be charitable enough to say, like everyone, we want to see a better future for New Zealand, and especially um, better outcomes for our children and people generally. So mm-hmm. you know we're on the same team, but. It just so happens that we're able to do this for free, so we're not so much uh, tied to uh, financial incentives to say certain things. But there is certainly a freedom that we have, and that is something that we have cherished. And again, if you're a member of the Reality Check Radio Foundations Club, it's because of people like you that we can have these conversations, and we can have these conversations without censorship. These are what we think, and we can put those messages out there as Marty said, with those other pressures put to bear. That's also, too, for me, a lot of the media now and a lot of the good information, obviously, is not found in our broadsheets every day. It is found in other places like Substacks and newsletters. And one of the ones who has been commenting for years and has done the most brilliant job of providing oversight, an alternative oversight to what's going on in our political landscape, of course, has been Dr. Muriel Newman, a former Act MP, mm-hmm. and she writes uh, for the NZCPR, so nzcpr.com. Rodney interviewed Muriel last week on Real Talk. Fantastic. If you haven't Absolute had a chance. Cracker. Yeah, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. Muriel's gift to the world is that she is able to concisely express clearly 
and call out just the utter BS that's going on in the political landscape. Her current article is uh, called Six Years of Failure. Yeah. After hearing uh, her interview with Rodney, I downloaded this. And it's really important because this is the problem. Because media has become so intense over the six years with this Labour government who have wielded media like a weapon and manipulated it, full credit to them. I mean, who masters the media is is going to master the hearts of the people. And Labour have done it. They've really caught everyone napping, to be fair. Yeah, I've made the point before that there's been that inversion of the usual rule that politics is downstream from culture. There's been a real effort to put politics upstream of culture. And that's that's been a little trick over the past few years. And, you know, after um, Donald Trump was elected, you know, he, he was the guy that the FBI and the CIA really didn't want. But he tweeted his way to the presidency. And it was in the lead up to the 2020 election in the States that the real crackdown on social media started. And I think there's going to be the next wave. And you see a lot of, I mean, I've, I've often spoken about how I'm noticing my search results, even on DuckDuckGo, which is now owned by Google anyway, uh, are very one-sided. And if you don't have a clear idea of your opinions based on facts going into this age, you're not going to get them. And that ties in as well with a lot of the hard left people in New Zealand longing for the baby boomers to die off and the older Kiwis to die off because they've got the kids. Mm. So speaking of that, things that come out of the blue, Muriel covered this. So her piece was looking at the six years of failure. So she says here, after nine years of national economists were describing New Zealand as having a rock star economy. A listener poll published at the time showed 84% think we are doing incredibly well for a small country at the bottom of the world. 76% believe, given the current state of the world, there's no better country to live in. And she sort of goes on to actually highlight some of the things that they went through. Now, why it's important this week, this is the period of time. It's about now, in 2017, that Angry Little decided he couldn't do it anymore and came out Jacinda. Mm. And the media just completely lost their shizzle over her. Yeah. And, and this this wave of Jacinda mania appeared. And I think Andrew Little was polling around 23%, I think, at the time. She managed to get them over the line to, what, 36 in seven weeks. But that was enough to give her a snuff and, and the rest we know is history. But there was a the great morning- interview with Stephen Joyce. Toby Manhart, I think, uh, did it uh, on their Gone by Lunchtime podcast. He was saying, you know, yeah, everything was was going pretty good, but, you know, she came in and she looked all fresh and new and that made us kind of look old and stale and that was enough. Yeah. You know, I think I think now that um, Nationals' fortunes are improving, there probably won't be in a, a flip of Nicola Willis being the prime ministerial candidate and Luxon being a deputy, but... I've always thought, you know, that that would be a better arrangement. It would it would uh, get the ladies excited about uh, in a way that maybe they're not excited about Luxon's commitment to gender equity. You know, he's got 21 out of 40, I think, list candidates are women. But also, more importantly, it would give Luxon the ability to do what he's good at, and he probably is a good manager, and it would give him the freedom rather than and, – and this was something, I think, also, Stephen Joyce said, the thing about being PM is you have to go to everything, and a lot of it's kind of ceremonial almost. You don't 
get to just put your head down your bum up and do the hard work and i think that would work a lot better mm. but you know i mean we'll see maybe, maybe you could do it but it, it would be a good look for him as well in terms of you know i think the perception is that you know there's always that criticism that they just want to add something to the cv i don't think that's really true but probably is true on on some level did you see Coglin got his knickers in a twist over what you were talking about in terms of that equity? As you said, there was almost that equals bit male female, and then they've they've always been criticised national. Their list not being too pakiha and not having yeah. enough Māori. They've got more Māori on the list than they ever had. But then Coglin said, "Oh yes, but on current polling, that balance gets thrown out." Oh, well, as, as Hosking said, "Give me the co- give me confidence," and yes. and I mean you can see this in. Trudeau's cabinet. Why is fifty percent of your cabinet female? Uh, because it's uh, two thousand and whatever the hell it was. Oh. It was a long time ago. Canada certainly suffered as a result of that. Just I couldn't give a rat's. I couldn't give a rat's ass of what the gender, the race, of whoever it was was there. Outcomes. If you can deliver me an outcome, I'm a happy camper. Yeah. Couldn't care less. And I think a lot of Kiwis are getting that way. Muriel goes on to say, and this is where the memory holing comes in and how they all got swept up about our Jacinda. Labour's new leader assured New Zealanders that if she became Prime Minister, she would be open, honest and transparent. Oh, those were the days. Oh, those were yeah, more innocent times, weren't they? Innocent times. Thanks to the vagaries of MMP, she was appointed our Prime Minister, but open, honest and transparent. She was not. The warning signs were all there. The fact that she'd been the president of the International Union of Socialist Youth, and this is the bit I didn't realise, and continued in that role for a further 15 months yeah. after being elected our Prime Minister. Oh, really? After being Prime Minister? Yes. Oh, surely. I, I thought that was just after being an MP. No. And I trust the Muriel. Yeah, so 15 months after being elected Prime Minister, dangerous extremism revealed itself early on in her Prime Ministership. She claimed climate change was going to be her generation's nuclear-free moment. She later declared a climate emergency and introduced the world's most extreme zero carbon act. It only exacerbated our cost of living crisis. You look at that, because I think a lot of people have forgotten that, that she'd done that. And remember, the fit, one of the first things she did when she came in was the captain's call, banning the all call. new oil and gas exploration. Didn't campaign on that. Mm. Now, you look at the theme of a lot of the things that we saw over the paper over the weekend in regards to climate. Mm. that climate drum is being banged. And to use a COVID phraseology, it seems that the science is very settled on climate, according to all the reporting. According to Google, the funny thing was on that Sunday, big Sunday Star Times focus article, that the facing page had uh, pull out from Andrea Vance's uh, column, which was, for years I've watched MPs tell barefaced, dead in the eye on truths. And the article was full of barefaced, dead in the eye untruths. And I mean, you know, like just sighing things said as facts, like, yeah, modeling over five decades has proved if, if effectively right at predicting global temperatures. They say it actually hasn't. It's tended to overestimate warming by around 100%. You know, I watched an sure. interesting talk by Michael Schellenberger, who wrote Apocalypse Never. And he said deaths from natural disasters are down by 90% over the past 100 years, even as the population has quadrupled. Emissions peaked in the UK and the US 50 years ago, 
They've been declining this decade. Great Barrier Reef had the highest coral growth measurements, and that was begun since the time measurements were begun 36 years ago, probably before that. Yeah, it was intriguing. I'm saying uh, the NDAT Centre in Belgium says total global weather and climate disasters have declined, and that's the only international body that measures them. So that's totally at odds with the picture. And then, of course, you bring into it that travesty of Niwa ignoring all of that barometric data that uh, Ian Wishart very cleverly dug out, which showed that in the late 1800s, storms were far bigger and far more common. So they are barefaced lies, because if you care to, to actually look, there are all these things being said that really aren't true, which isn't to say we shouldn't look after our environment. I think we should look after it a lot better than we should. We should you know, really control trawling, and we should improve our fresh water. And we could do that with the billions that we're sending overseas. But it's not about the environment. It's about the printing of the, the money, specifically debt. And, and in that quote, that first quote you put out, modelling, Modelling yeah. isn't hard data. Modelling is some little boffin with letters under his name sitting there contemplating and navel-gazing. And like anything, a model is only as good as the parameters that you set at the beginning of your model. Yeah, well, you can you can decide what a model is going to show. And the Occam's razor fact is you can get funding for a model that shows temperatures going to increase. You can't get it for a model that says it's going to decrease. In the same way as you can get paid for media that tells kids that they're about to boil to death in the next 10 years, but you can't get it if you say, hey, wait a second, you know, is this the best thing? And as I said, as I've said, you know, on a few occasions, we're all set according to, you know, some some earlier government reports. There's a possibility that our Paris Accord commitments might cost us $70 billion this decade. $70 billion, that is 30 times the total treaty settlement. And if you think about how much we've torn ourselves to bits over the treaty settlements, there's been very little, very little sceptical coverage of climate alarmism. And yeah. to the point where now it's entirely absent. So on that, in theme, in the Sunday Star Times, there was a huge piece about the red zoned Pai area. And I'm not going to dive into all of that because it's very much a local thing here. And it's it's been quite huge. This report was written by Andrea Barnes, and she talks about a lot of the nuts and bolts things that are going on in the ground here in Hawke's Bay, but it's the subheading that leapt out at me. Uh, red zoned, Parkify, six months after the cyclone, Parkify locals face awful choice. The subheading, as the costs of climate change rise, the government has begun forcing flood owners to, to move, prompting clashes over what's fair, National Affairs Editor Andrea Barnes. As the costs of climate change rise. Now, what costs are those, Andrea? Because, as you said, Sheldon's natural disasters are one thing, but also, too, you know, or are those down the 90% that come, of the century? Yeah, or are they are these the costs that um, signing up to the United Nations Agenda 2030 have cost us? What are the costs? Yeah. Is it us being signed up without ever voting? for it for the WEF agenda of 15-minute cities and having to clear people out of the country. And it's worth remembering this neo-feudalist agenda. The people who are going to resist it are the people who are able to be independent of government. And someone who lives on a couple of acres with water supply, some stock, and able to grow their own food is independent of government. They don't want people out there. They want mm. them in cities, living in apartments. I said to you earlier, I think there's 
some merit in the theory that that I've seen floating around that one of the ways uh, they're clearing out the countryside is to say, well, these wildfires make it too dangerous to insure, so you can't get a mortgage. So come and live in our 15-minute city and eat the bugs. Often you need to look at the wider themes of things. So in Muriel's article here, she says, by 2019, the Radical United Nations Agenda 2030 had been embedded into New Zealand legislative and regulatory framework. We only found out because Jacinda Ardern boasted about it during a speech she delivered in New York. My government is doing something not many other countries have tried. We've incorporated the principles of 2030 Agenda to our domestic policymaking in a way that we hope will drive system-level actions. Yeah. Again, not not campaigned on. We didn't. Yeah, vote I on don't that. remember hearing that in the campaign. No. So then you look at what is going on with the disasters that we've had in in our time, and I think this is something that the key government did. That actually, this is where the butterfly effect mm. of the largesse of government can be a dangerous thing, and that was when they went into Christchurch and there was financial support from government to areas in Christchurch, particularly with ones that were in the red zone and moving people out and uh, almost essentially underwriting a certain level of insurance. Now, not to say that it's all clean cut in Christchurch. I know for a fact that it's not, and there are even still people to this day trying to get what they're owed. But the dangerous thing here is is that with this red zoning or governments now saying via councils that you can't live on your land because of a maybe could be, Mm. should be something that may happen in the future, that then sets a really dangerous precedent because if the governments are saying this, that then means the responsibility of the landowner who if you were a responsible landowner and you'd taken out insurance and then the insurance company says, well, I'm not going to cover you on that plot of land because the the government are not going to back it up because they believe that there's a risk. All of a sudden, you've got this piece of land that unless you uh, take a a buyout from the government is now, in effect, useless. And then meanwhile, on the land that isn't useless and potentially is in areas of greater value, they're running around putting these SNAs over large swathes of farmland. It's almost like they are invisibly, as you said, corralling you into these more urban centres because they don't want all of these rural people living as their sovereign individuals on the land, living their own lives and not essentially suckling on the tit of government. It is, it's, you've got you're to watch out for this stuff. You're seeing that in Māori media a lot as well, you know, these kind of unquestioning, oh, you know, we're, we're going to have to move to stay safe and so what are we going to do with our sacred sites? The discussion jumps immediately to how are we going to do this rather than, hey, mana moto hake, you know, we've lived here for, for centuries and we're going to stay here. It all comes back to that quote that's often attributed to Thomas Jefferson, but in all, in all likeliness might not have been government big enough to supply everything you need is big enough to take everything you have. That's where we are. That's why the spending increased 80% under Labour. There are still people who think, oh, you know, can I suckle the teat of the state? Mm. But I think anyone who thinks about it thinks, man, the idea was that the government was borrowing and spending all this money so they got votes. The more sinister undertone is they were doing it so they could have power over people. And that was how they got people to lock down because so many people now depend on, in part, money that in some way comes from the public purse. So it's a lever. Oh, couldn't agree more. 
Muriel goes on, uh, speaking of levers, she was on the way out after the first term. It was looking like a one term. Yeah. And then COVID. And COVID changed mm. everything. And as, exactly as you said, that we were already groomed. We were already groomed for those lockdowns. That then got her over the line with more than 50%. And in the last three years, the wrath and destruction. And again, this is one that it's sort of kind of, there was a little bit of a hiss and a roar after she got back in a second time on this. And I know that Muriel has been one of the ones really banging this drum quite loudly. And that is Hey Pua Pua. So whilst we didn't agree to um, Agenda 2030 in the first term, Hey Pua Pua was sat, written there, ready not campaigned on once, not an yeah. absolute whisper about it anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the and, media should have been an outrage about that, and they weren't. And I mean, there was, a, there was a, 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 an article on Monday's uh, New Zealand Herald, which was about oh, the Kingitanga celebration and how everyone had turned up to it. Hipkins, it was classic doublespeak. He was saying that po- opposition politicians were drumming up racial division. It's like, what have you just spent six years doing? And furthermore, even more hilariously, asked if Labour also had a responsibility to better explain some of the policies. This is about co-governance, right? Uh, Hipkins said he understood how fear could come from uncertainty. And this is his quote, but I believe as political leaders, we have a responsibility for the path forward rather than to exploit that fear for political purposes. <laughs> oh, That's my goodness. Again, the double, the double speak is getting uh, pretty high pitched at this stage. It sure is. She then she talks about the Hey Pua Pua report, and I mean, God, we'll be here all day if we go dive into Hey Pua Pua. But we're starting to see it now. We're at the pointy end where things are getting rammed through. Some stuff's been watered down. Both ACT and uh, National have sort of said they're going to roll pretty much anything that was Hey Pua Pua back. Good. Mm. I'll believe it when I see it. She does talk about here, though, Labour justified co-governance by claiming that the Treaty of Waitangi delivered a partnership between Māori and the Crown. But the great Māori leader, Sir Aparana Nata, and his brilliant explanation of the original meaning of the treaty shows that this is to be a lie. Is that word yeah. again? Well, uh, not just him. There was also the um, Kohimaramara Convention in 1860, where I think it was like 60 assembled chiefs agreed that they had indeed ceded sovereignty. Mm. You know, but again, it, we expect people to tell the truth. They don't feel that burden because no. the, the the means justify the ends. So I or, looked up um, the transcript of the speech that uh, Aparananata gave at the centenary of the treaty. Yeah. Okay, so this was 1940. What remains of the treaty? What is there in the treaty that Māori can today celebrate wholeheartedly with you? Let me say one thing. Clause 1 of the treaty handed over the mana and sovereignty of New Zealand to Queen Victoria and her descendants forever. That is the outstanding fact today. But for the shield of sovereignty handed over to Her Majesty and her descendants, I doubt whether there will be a free Māori race in New Zealand today. Our acknowledgement of that outstanding fact in history of 100 years as we offer up the youth and the very flower of our race to stand side by side with you in an empire's fight. If your excellency, that means that the obtaining of the full manhood of the Māori race, well, we can then accept the war as our opportunity of making good with you as joint citizens in the British Empire. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty unambiguous, isn't it? 
very unambiguous. And it is the final paragraph, actually, the final part of the speech I thought was also interesting when we look at things now. But there still remains the thing called the spirit of the Māori people. We want to remain part, but a distinct and indelible part of the future inhabitants of this country. The message of the Māori race is to you is we want to retain our individuality as a race. If judged by your standards, we fall short. Try and look at it from the Māori standpoint. So long as we are happy, does it matter very much whether we square up with the Pākehā standards or not? Are they so very good that we should square up to them? Let us achieve health, comfort, happiness. We are well on the way to that now, thanks to the quality of the government in New Zealand. But while you help us, please remember that a lot of things that you do for us would appear to be for our betterment, but they contain with the dynamic forces that show or other shatter the Māori culture that we wish to retain as the foundation for the individuality of our people. Bravo. Yeah. I read that and I thought to myself, wow. But more than that, I actually think this government is undoing that. What he's saying about wanting to remain distinctly Māori, I absolutely totoko that sentiment. Yeah, do it. You know, let's have a true treaty partnership where one people under the law, because, you know, unless you can find me an example of ethno-nationalism that uh, has been kumbaya, I think any reading of history uh, reveals pretty quickly it's a terrible, terrible idea. Mm. Well, and I think that's what Nata was saying. And he was he was saying, allow us our, our mana, which I believe Māori had for a really long time, within a partnership with other Kiwis. But now they're trying to use, as you said, they're trying to use the law and use regulation to actually tip, you know, put a, a very solid finger on those scales, which is not his intent at all. But again, you can draw the comparison to that speech and a statesman such as Sir Aparananata then take a look at Martin Luther King Jr. and all the work that he did in the civil rights movement and look what's going on culturally and ideologically around race in a country yeah. like the United States. Well, I mean, again, you know, we've sort of done enough shows that I'm starting to repeat myself, but for people who didn't hear the early ones, it's my frequent uh, caution that women thought CIA and the Rockefellers were doing them a big favour and uplifting women when they sponsored feminism. And now those same psychopaths are suddenly really concerned about Indigenous peoples and, you know, telling people in countries who are non-Indigenous, yeah, actually, you don't belong here, you're not legitimate, you're colonisers. It's just taking the fight out of them. What what the Rockefellers really and, and the CIA were really sponsoring was division and uh, demoralization of the most likely opponents. And I, I think, you know, as, as I said, I've got a history uh, in my family and me personally that goes, and you too, goes mm. a long way back, common interests and, and love. We should aim to build on that rather than tearing ourselves to bits at the behest of uh, people who print money. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you want to go to next? You and I had that common experience reading the Weekend Herald where we each only pulled out one article. It was pretty slim pickings. I tell you what, I mean, if that was a diet plan, I'd be you know, skinny mini, skinny mini, and we both pulled out the same one. Yeah, so, yeah. what are the odds? What are the odds? And uh, we're talking about Bruce Cottrell's opinion piece, 
which was politicians keep frittering away our future. Oh, staying on a theme. Again, a fair bit underlined. I mean, the the best. I mean, you know, he's 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 talking about bringing some pretty um, heavy criticism of of Labour and their their games taking uh, GST off fruit and vegetables and then um, slapping another petrol tax, which is is going to make it about even up. But his last sentence pretty much summed it up: the incumbent Labour government does not look like a group of people who desperately want to make a major difference to the country's outlook. Rather, they appear to be an unqualified, shoddy and desperate group grasping for power with nothing but their own interests in mind. I raised this uh, last week as well that, you know, Chris Hipkins has said we're totally focused on winning. Mm. That's true. I'd, I'd like them to be totally focused on children being able to read and write after 10 years in their union approved uh, education system. And I noticed that after six years, the Labour have, have finally um, released a policy that prioritises children learning to read and write, uh, which is ironic given that the most numerous um, occupation in New Zealand's parliament at the moment is ex-teacher, closely followed by union hack. When they te- they said they're mandating the way that teachers teach English, mathematics and science, I was like... Yeah. Surely that's Education Policy 101. Are you already doing that? And then, then the fiscal policy announcement that te- that uh, yeah. students need to be taught fiscal literacy in schools. Yeah, the projection. was satire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had, uh, and we can quickly bring it in because I've only got a little un- underlined in the Sunday Star Times. Alison Mao fretting that uh, I'm hoping any policies aimed at better basic literacy and numeracy standards do not leave behind other less traditional subject areas like sex and media literacy education and other so-called soft skills. I highlighted that exact section too, and I wrote I wrote in there, so in other words, we can't lose the gender education and the propaganda. Is that what you're saying, Ellie? But she then goes on. So she spends over half the column, though, justifying her reasoning at why gender and media needed to stay in the curriculum. And it was because it would have helped her teenage self. Yeah. It's like, oh, really, Ali? Oh, look, you figured it out eventually, darling. So, you know, <laughs> it's not oh. what I said to you before we went to air because that's probably not suitable for broadcast. Aren't we getting mature? We are. And you didn't have the stomach for this. So I did not have the stomach for this. I started you reading it. hack it. No, I couldn't. No, I'll be brutally honest. I couldn't. I was to use the parlance. I was triggered. Yeah. This is the review of Ashley Bloomfield. It's a big gush piece on him that manages to not mention the vaccine, although it's got a picture of him holding up a syringe and uh, a book about the COVID pandemic in a way that you imagine if you've got myocarditis or pericarditis or any one of these terrible uh, immune issues that people have suddenly started getting to the point where we were talking about this, the stats have come out and from the year 2022, June to June 2023, we've got, what, 37% increase in people who are too sick to work. Yeah, the disability figures. In fact, un momento, por favor, I've got them right here. We have 14%... Uh, excess deaths, birth rate down by 28%, disability rate up 
by 38%, heart attacks up by 83%, and strokes by 25%. Amazing. And of course, none of that rated a mention. Shane Curry, give me a call, mate. You've got to take a good, hard look at yourself doing that Andrea Vance barefaced lie. I mean, he, he admitted to being a micromanager. So he obviously got on well with Jacinda Ardern on that, but he's gone to work for the World Health Organization, which is, of course, heavily sponsored by Pfizer. And not a lot of people know this, but their agenda is set by their sponsors. Um, and hasn't he got some cushy job with Auckland University as well? Yeah, he's doing a bit of lecturing, but he, he's saying the pandemic is not a problem and we've settled into a pattern in New Zealand and globally where it's not the main thing. And he's quoted as saying, we've got a really good understanding. We've got effective vaccines. We've got effective treatments. So, you know, I'd like to see his data for saying that we've got an effective vaccine because even when he was up on the podium of truth, they knew it didn't stop transmission. They knew it didn't stop people catching it. They vaguely thought maybe it makes it not as bad, but I don't think people's experiences bore that out. He's talking about the need to introduce more courageous reformulated food and introducing taxes on the likes of sugar and sweetened beverages. So again, you know, he has a reputation for being a micromanager and he wants to uh, micromanage us. So he's, he's saying the big concern is long COVID. There's still people dying, but again, we've got a residual level of acceptance that that's the ongoing impact here. Is it long COVID, actually? I mean, are you looking at whether people who were unvaccinated suffered at lower rates than people who who were? There was another um, story in the Sunday Star Times where Virginia Fallon left New Zealand. Mm. Did you see that? That one I did read, and I actually thought she did quite a good job. Yep. It was interesting that they both had those pieces in the same paper, but... Well, there's uh, a lot of rearguard action happening. Yeah. You know, of... there's, there's a, oh, you know, we just took a break from um, from confronting these issues. And, you know, even there, it, it, she, she says it saw multiple lockdowns and a country spend of millions. Darling, oh, I think it was um, b -b 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 more, billions. yeah, put a B on that. It had the this guy... Uh, Emeritus history professor Jeffrey Rice, speaking about the COVID restrictions being lifted, he said, we still have thousands of cases and people are still dying from it. So the recent relaxation of the last controls could be seen as premature if a new strain of the virus appears. That's the kind of school of thought that hungers for constant total lockdown. Well, in terms of that announcement, and while Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' announcement this week acknowledged some of the impacts, others were undeniably glossed over. There was no mention of how the pandemic spawned the so-called freedom movement. There's that so-called again. Yeah, I had a thought about that this morning. I think it should be the so-called regenerative movement. You know, we're the parallel culture and there needs to be a complete rebuild. So it's not just freedom. Yeah. It goes on to say the so-called freedom movement and pushed a significant section of society to become utterly untrusting of authority, nor the parliamentary occupation that culminated in tear gas and fire on the streets of the capital. While there was no doubt fractions in our collective sense of unity, Hipkins said, I believe New Zealanders can be enormously proud. 
there is absolutely no question that we saved lives. Mm. Where's the data on that, Chris? Yeah, 14% excess deaths, 83% increase in heart attacks. Maybe the vaccine did save some lives, but what's the total balance? The statistics, which again didn't appear in this article, that uh, our excess deaths will say clearly our excess deaths are up 14% over and above what we'd expect. So there's absolutely no question that it saved lives. Mm. There's absolutely no question that 14% more people are dying than we'd expect. But experts say that these life-saving measures not only cost us enormously, they reshape society in its future. Of course, everyday Kiwis say the same thing. Hmm. During the past few years, the Sunday Star Times has spoken to families torn apart by disagreements over mandates and vaccines, as well as self-described outcasts who feared they'd never return to the national fold. The mental damage caused by this will last for a while, said an unvaccinated Ben Visser last year, and it's a lot more severe than a lot of people realise. Then there's Dawn Bodger, who lost her job as an early childhood teacher due to her refusal to get vaccinated. People are afraid of us because they don't understand us. And during the parliamentary occupation that brought Wellington to a standstill, Chief Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt described the five meetings he had with protesters as pain, disaffection, alienation and anger is what I heard. Being called a river of filth by Michael Wood will do that to you, won't it? Yeah, well, kind of piss you off a bit, just a touch. And, and again, what's left unsaid there is that there is now this belief that everything is over, right? Now, we are in the freedom movement is moving forward. As you said, we, we the are regenerative trying to, movement. Yes, the regenerative movement. But those mandates still exist. You uh, can't work for a Tafata order agency of any kind if you have not had at least three vaccines. I had a talk to a doctor who visited an A&E last night. Her landlady for her, her clinic had had a fall and um, hadn't had it looked at. And she said, you, you know, you might have a broken hip. So she took her along and she said they got there and the triage nurses who were just absolutely, she said she felt sorry for the lady on the desk and the nurses, they're kind of flapping around ineffectually. And uh, they said, actually, you might want to come back. There's there's 11 people ahead of you, but you'll keep your place in the queue. And she got back an hour later, and there were nine people in the queue. There were two doctors on. In the hour, the doctors had seen one patient each. And she, she's a very accomplished doctor. And she said, I was, I was just sitting there, and I was looking at these people who are waiting, these kids who are waiting five hours. And I just looked at them, and I thought, that kid's got impetigo. They need some flu clocks. That kid's just grizzly. Check their ears, check their temperature, give them some paracetamol and send them home. Give me a name badge and a stethoscope. I'll clear this room in an hour. And you do see that in, in hospitals. I've spoken before about how morale is something that unless you've got a soul, it's difficult to manage for. And once it goes, all the activities can seem the same, but your performance just is tanking. And I find when I go into hospitals, I notice that in terms of hand speed. You know, these mm. people are slammed, but they're moving slow. She said, you know, she saw a, a doctor come on and uh, she said, I, you know, I've felt that before. She's worked in busy A&Es in, in England. She said, I just recognized the look. They just looked at this full waiting list and just thinking, what the hell have the doctors been on during the day been doing? And there's two doctors who said she never saw them. 
said, I don't know what they were. They had them hidden out the back. Like they should have been in there just prioritizing people, sending people home. And I mean, she's got a private clinic. And uh, that's the difference between the public system and the private system. Private system, you've got to give people good service so they don't keep coming back. Public system, it doesn't really matter. So you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, but the service we offer is free. It's not free. It costs about, well, it probably is more like 180, 200 bucks per patient in A&E now. There is a cost. And it's considerably more than the cost in private care. I wonder, is there a deterrent for things that are obviously things that they should have been gone to a normal GP for but won't because of the cost? So do they make them wait because then that deters them from doing it again? Yeah, well, good point. Just shows you, though, that uh, this is a system that is crumbling. And uh, um, one of these days, I think you and I might have to do a, an entire session on public versus private it's a sacred cow, socialized yeah. public medicine in this country that nobody wants to tackle. Well, it's, it's true in Britain as well. Everyone, NHS is held in such high esteem, but everyone likes moaning about it. The more top heavy it gets in terms of management, the less effective it is. You know, she was saying, just looking at it, she could see good case to be made for essentially private A&E clinics that are government funded because, yeah, to, to, to do that, you know, there's ways of just slamming it out. You know, a GP sees, what, six patients an hour? or You know, so the, you've got these doctors in, in this hospital, according to her, seeing one each an hour. Mm. I do have a theory, though, with all of what's been going on. And, and the big Ooh. thing that smacked me heading six weeks out from the election is we're in this crazy state with the current, current government of what I call political Munchausen's by proxy. Mm. where so much of what they've implemented, so much of what they've tinkered, whether it be housing, whether it be rent reforms, whether it be water, whether it be environment, health mandates, COVID, even now vaping is the latest one that they've yeah. come out, that in their effort to try and fix a problem, they've created a problem and then, then they try to swoop in to say, but that's okay because we'll fix this problem. It's like, but you created the problem in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's why the support's tanking. You know, people are hearing all of these, um, you know, enthusiastically promoted uh, new policies. And it's like, dudes, you've had six years. The last three years, you've had a majority where you could pass anything you want. You know, why have you been messing around with what you've done and achieved so little? Exactly. Exactly. Which is probably a blessing, you know, in many ways for New Zealand. True. True. Oh, and congratulations to the Spanish women's team for winning the Women's FIFA World Cup. I wondered if they popped to Palmerston for drinks. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I digress. Well, thank you very much. As always, are you be, are you on the panel again this week? I, I think I might have a week off this week. I know that they're rotating them a bit, which is fine. I, I have, uh, and I, I shared it with you uh, the other day. I've scorched off a, a lengthy column after a lengthy absence from writing them, and I'll I'll read it as well, just so it's not too onerous. Is that up uh, on the website yet? I'm not sure whether they've done it yet because they did have that couple of days off at the start of the week, but of it should have, be up yeah. there soon. So uh, go and have a look for that. It's under blogs. It is under blogs. I got to see the draft. It's uh, most excellent. So I definitely guarantee uh, that you will enjoy it. Remember, if you want to share something with us, with Marty or I, you can do so. 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Um, and you get and I... in touch. As, as I said, if you're a journalist and uh, 
you want an outlet for your need to tell the truth, we'll treat it with the greatest discretion and you'll be able to soothe your battered conscience. I'm sure we'll get on fine. We're not crazy. No, we're not crazy. All right, don't disappear. The Woke News of the Week is still coming up here on Counterculture, here on Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Marty. Have a great week. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. It's now time for the Woke News of the Week, and let's see what's making news around the world this week. Oliver Anthony, the new authentic voice of music, continues to make music his way. Anthony has revealed he's brushed off various offers valued at $8 million from the music industry. Anthony, who lives in Farmville, Virginia, dropped Rich Men North of Richmond on YouTube last week to the reception of more than 20 million views and over a million likes. His previous release on his record label received roughly a tenth of the engagement. The lyrics imply that the titular characters of the song are the politicians in Washington, which is just over 100 miles north of Richmond, Virginia. People in the music industry give me blank stares when I brush off $8 million offers, Anthony wrote on Facebook. I wrote the music I wrote because I was suffering from mental health and depression. These songs have connected with millions of people on such a deep level because they're being sung by someone who's feeling the words in the very moment that they've been sung. No editing, no agent. No bull, just some idiot in his guitar. The style of music that we should have never gotten away from in the first place. The singer-songwriter announced he was going on tour with his first stop being a free concert in North Carolina. Anthony explained it wouldn't include six tour buses, 15 tractor trailers and a jet. I don't want to play stadium shows. I don't want to be in the spotlight, he wrote. Anthony's latest release is available on music streaming services, ranking number one on iTunes, and another of his songs, Ain't Got a Dollar, is number two on the platform, and I've Got to Get Sober is number three. He has more than two million monthly listeners on Spotify, an increase from the 40,000 he had before releasing his latest song. We Will, We Will Woke You. It is one of Queen's most beloved songs, Fat Bottom Girls, has mysteriously dropped from the group's new Greatest Hits collection. The 1978 track, written by Brian May, has been enjoyed by generations of fans as a humorous tribute to a young man's appreciation of fuller-figured ladies. But 45 years later, it appears that the lyrics such as Left alone with Big Fat Fanny, She was such a naughty nanny, Big woman, you made a bad boy out of me, and Fat Bottom Girls, You Make the Rockin' World Go Round, have been hit by woke cancel culture. It was such a popular hit for Queen, it appeared fourth on the band's original 1981 Greatest Hits album. But last week it was nowhere to be seen when Universal Records announced that they would not be releasing a version of the record on Yoto, a new audio platform. I taught the law and the law won. A law lecturer claims she was sacked from her position after refusing to follow her employer's requests to indoctrinate students in gender identity theory. Dr. Elmut Gadow, 43, was forced out of her job at the Open University UK in November after being sacked for gross misconduct. She says the institution accused her of serious bullying and harassment and a breach of their transgender staff policy after a number of posts in an online university forum which risked creating an environment in the forum that isn't inclusive, trans-friendly or respectful. 
Gadow said the university's policy that included introducing diverse gender identities into the curriculum and also teaching students that offenders' preferred pronouns should be used when referring to them. The lecturer warned that the policy was incompatible with the role of a criminal lawyer, saying that the sex is a relevant fact for offences involving perpetrators and or victims' bodies. Speaking to The Telegraph, Gadal added, no offender should be allowed to dictate the language of his case in a way which masks the relevant facts. She is now launching a legal claim against the university, crowdfunding for her case. The lecturer claims that she was harassed, discriminated against, and unfairly dismissed. And finally, getting sensitive over sensitivity writers. A top British author, Jacqueline Wilson, has slammed rewrites of the adult English classics into woke-friendly terms, saying that she is very against it. Her comments came after classic books by authors such as Roald Dahl and Eden Blyton have recently been altered by their publishers. They've chosen to remove certain words and phrases which they now deem to be offensive. Wilson has criticised rewrites of adult classics. She cited her favourite book, Jane Eyre, as a depiction of a mentally ill person, which she believes would never be written today. She told ITV, I was just thinking about Jane Eyre the other day. I mean, with the mad woman in the attic and the way she's depicted, you'd never find that sort of treatment of people with serious mental health problems. And yet, I would absolutely be at the forefront of people saying, no, leave it alone, it's my favourite book. The Roald Dahl Story Company and Puffin Books recently carried out a review on Dahl's books and chose to remove a range of content, including references to weight, violence, race, gender and mental health. They did this by hiring sensitivity readers back in 2020, whose job it was to ensure Dahl's work could continue to be enjoyed by all today. Some examples of edited words include old hag becoming old crow in The Witches and replacing the word fat in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with enormous. That's been the Woke News of the Week. If you've got some Woke News you want to share with us here at Counterculture, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email, or text us to 2057. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. If you haven't checked out the Reality Check website for a while, there have been some great new improvements, like expanded merchandise options, the Foundation Members Club, and the replay page with new topics options that help you access content and issues that interest you. B. Williams is here next with some more great classic commentary, but it's time for one more song from me. Initially released in 1994, this song failed to fire as a single. Well, that's until the Terry Todd remixed version came the following year, and it soon became a fixture of radio and nightclub rotates. 
is the British duo Everything But The Girl and This Is Missing. Thank you for joining me this week on Counterculture here on RCR and I'll see you all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.